Thursday, June the 2nd, 2022. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of That's What G Said Podcast. We're going to talk some NBA Finals and preview the upcoming series, Boston at Golden State. Eric joins for a dive into the series and how we may be looking to attack it overall and some series futures. Then we'll jump into the horse racing portion of this episode. We've got some Friday Santa Anita best bets. Friday Penn National, they've got a little stakes card there. A really a good couple races that, that we dove into. So a couple plays over at Penn National for Friday night. Then Saturday, Louisiana Downs, full card. Saturday, Santa Anita best bets. Sunday, Louisiana Downs, full card. We've got Friday, Saturday, and Sunday racing here on this episode of That's What G Said. Then we'll get into this week in wrestling. Chad Koopaloop, I, uh, we had a match last week, me and Koop. I went like Macho Man um, with the uh, with the ring bell over the larynx like Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. So Chad Cooper, he's out of commission this week. Chad's had a little under the weather this week, unfortunately. So um, he's uh, he's resting those pipes. So Koopaloop won't be with us, but I will uh, handle this week in wrestling. And then we'll get to the old wrestling rewatch. We go to Starcade 1995. WCW, it was the World Cup of Wrestling New Japan versus WCW. A cool idea. Some things hit, some missed. We'll talk all about it. We'll deep dive it with Andrew Champagne. So we've got NBA Finals preview, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, racing, multiple tracks, Penn National, Louisiana Downs, Santa Anita, and then this week in wrestling, we're going to hit SmackDown Raw, Hell in a Cell preview, NXT in your house preview, Double or Nothing recap, and AEW Dynamite. Then we finish up with the old wrestling rewatch. On this episode of That's What G Said, that is presented by BetterThan.Vegas. Give them a follow on Twitter at BTVBets. If you are a fan of sports, if you bet on games, if you just like to watch sports and want to be prepared and previewed for what's happening, you need to follow Better Than Vegas. You need to make sure to follow BTV Bets on Twitter. Every day, there are free game previews. Um, there are free sports previews looking at the entire slate where different handicappers and gamblers from all around the world give out their analysis, their insight, their advice, some of the ways that they're playing. The best part, it's all free. doesn't cost you anything. If you want to just follow along and watch the live streams, all you have to do is follow on social media. They have tons of giveaways and uh, free public props where they'll make a wager and they'll give it to one of you. And if it hits, you keep the money. There's the weekly showdown where if you create an account, which is free, and just post some of your wagers, if you have the best ROI of the week, you win money for nothing. Check out betterthan.vegas. Let's get into the interview with Eric where we dive into the NBA Finals. It's coming up as we recorded on Wednesday night. I'm putting this show out on Thursday, so you'll get this a few hours before Game 1, and you'll get an idea how we're looking at attacking the entire series. If you want some help game by game, about an hour before all of the NBA Finals games, at that website I just mentioned, Better Than Vegas, on Twitter, at BTVBets, we'll be having live stream previews with myself with Eric and with Leo from better than Vegas so you can uh, follow there and get game to game insights and wagers right now an overall series look with Eric NBA. Who's hot? Who's hot? Who's hot? Who's hot? we have been here every week of the NBA season and we're now into the NBA finals Eric joins us as he has and uh 
Eric, like always, you know, it's not a direct line there. The teams that uh, are in the NBA Finals this year are probably teams that we may not have looked at a month, two months, three months ago and said, these will be the teams. But, you know, of, of the teams that were playing and available right now, health-wise, this is probably the two best teams that were still out there playing right now with Boston getting through and uh, they'll be taking on Golden State. Yeah, I mean, the Warriors are finally healthy. It makes you think what would have happened if Clay didn't have those devastating knee injuries. Because um, anytime he's been healthy, you know, they've basically made it to the finals. Um, you know, and Boston was kind of the healthiest team coming out of the East. You know, Bucks. Yeah, they were good. Thing. You know, they were. Yeah, Miami they've been good. You, banged up, you, know, you called today. Boston months ago here as a team to keep an eye on because their defense flipped the point of the year. Where they were like under 500 They were in like the 10th spot And then they really changed the way they played They made a trade things. So I'm the one that's like Pushing the Boston sort of kind of got lucky I don't like that word lucky Maybe fortunate is probably a better word Because lucky, se- lucky comes off bad Like you didn't earn something Boston earned it right? They deserve to be here They worked hard They just didn't have to work as hard as they would have If you know Middleton was playing for the Bucks Or if the heat were completely healthy and they looked like they were about to, you know, really beat up the heat in game seven with like three minutes left. They completely froze and Miami almost won that game. I mean, Jimmy Butler had an opportunity to take the lead. He shot that three. What'd you kind of think about the shot there too? I was looking at some of the shot quality numbers on that. I I'm sort of mixed on it. Like He's just that's just not his type of shot, but I can kind of understand like it's a momentum thing, and you're thinking like, oh my gosh, I got a chance, we got a chance to take the lead. I just it it was it's pretty crazy that he had that opportunity. So I can tell you firsthand that um, I I have seven friends that have played in the NBA, um, bench warmers to starters on championship teams, and I've talked to every single one of them, and all of them told me it was an awful shot. Yeah, every single one of them told me it was an awful shot. I thought it was an awful shot too, and it's just because Jimmy Butler shot twenty three percent. That's not him from three point. That's not um, his shot. If he and off the dribble, even three, like that, yeah, he was one of three before that shot. If this was a game where he was feeling it from the outside, that's a different scenario. If he was like, you know what I mean, like four or seven from three, yeah, that's fine. You know, you're feeling it. But you've been one for three of the game. You've played 48 minutes, um, you know, and I guarantee, like, if you were to take, like, a blind poll of um, key front office, all of them would say they didn't like the shot, too. Of course, they're not going to say anything now just because, you know what I mean, Butler's, like, their main guy. But, um, yeah, it was, I didn't like the shot. I wasn't a fan of it. I thought, you know, he could have gone to the rim just because yeah, you... Horford's backpedaling. Yep. Um you know, do you think that the tie? Do you think the legs come into it at all? Like maybe even in a subconscious way, is he going? I don't know if we can go through overtime right now, and just trying to win that because I don't think so either. Because I've heard people say so. that, like that guy's not driven that way. No, right? He's not. He's not thinking. That. He's fine. He's, like he, you don't think he wanted to tie that game up and have another five more minutes, an opportunity and the, after the, the reality of the situation is Horford's backing up. He's not going to follow him. No, he, he's not. You're going to so get by it. He'll get a layup and yeah. like, you know, I see these guys busting out all these statistical stuff, you know, if you have this probability, this probability, this probability, well, that's fine. But what's the probability Jimmy Butler actually takes the three? 
because he doesn't know like, he just doesn't take many Giannis, period this year he was 23 percent. this year Giannis was 29 percent shooting threes but yeah. percentage wise Giannis is a better shooter than he is I don't want Jimmy Butler taking that shot I want Jimmy Butler going to the hole um you know I mentioned it earlier in the series um I think it was game two um the thing Butler does is when Miami gets down he just starts forcing, forcing, forcing. I know he had a mammoth game, game six, excuse me, but he still had nine assists. Um, you know, him still having nine assists, he was still getting people involved. Last game, he only had one assist. That's not, you know what I mean? That's not heat basketball. Um, he'd be able to move the ball and everything. But, you know, Hero is a lot banged up. Um, obviously, I really don't understand the whole. Yeah, Lowry's banged up too. Hero's banged up. You know, I really don't understand the whole um, P.J. Tucker stuff. Uh, why wasn't he getting more run? I thought that was a little weird. Uh, Spolstra just kind of said afterwards he didn't have the legs. Um, I thought that was, I don't know. I don't know. I just thought that was like a, a little weird, like of a comment to make. He just didn't have the legs. He's been playing the whole game. Yeah. Um, they definitely needed some help on the rebounding. Um, so, yeah, I just, you know, it's just one of those things. I just... Didn't really, you know, didn't really like the shot and, you know, supposed to really like leaned on his bench. But I think the bigger issue that not enough people are talking about is, you know, when we get to the series, when, when you have a team that's there for the first time and their lead guard isn't naturally a, a lead guard and you see them evaporate, you know, a lead like they had because it was. It was 98 to 87 at the 320 minute. Three line. minutes. Yeah, 320. 320. You know, and then Smart missed a pull-up jump shot. Uh, Smart missed a three-point jump shot. Smart missed another three-point jump shot. Um, Grant Williams turnover. Marcus Smart missed another three-point shot. Uh, offensive foul on Jalen Brown. Um, Marcus Smart missed layup. You know, it's That's, a lot of Marcus Smart. I know. enough Jason Tatum. Um, and all this stuff is taken, like, you know, like really – you know, really, really, really early in the clock. And that's another thing that's a little worrisome. Like, I really mm -hmm. feel like you, you, you can, I, I, I kind of feel like the narrative that people are pushing is Boston's had a tougher trip. I, I know. I don't, I don't believe so, I man. Feel, I feel Boston's kind of effed around a little bit. Yes. You looked, you looked at the Warriors, what the Warriors have done. Um, You know, it's not like they're taking these games, like the, 4-1, you know, 4-2, you know, 4-1, you know, they're, they're handling business. It's not like they're taking these games longer than they need to. And you look at Boston, like, I just, I, I, I get, like, they beat the Nets, but let's kind of look back at it. The Nets weren't that good this year. No, they I were, like, they think about the Nets were, like, people don't talk about either. Okay, whether or not it was Simmons, it was either going to be Simmons or Harden that would have been there, that would have been another Major contributor on their team, and Joe Harris is their next best player after them. And Joe and Harris can play a little defense, hits three yeah, like he, he is huge yeah. for them. He is, yeah. And you know they beat the Bucks, obviously not Middleton there, and you know the Bucks, you know they Bucks just don't have enough shooters. But they were still still took him to a game seven. He were insanely banged up. Took him to a game seven. So um, here's it's just so here's my series. So here's my thing, right? So like, you know, shot quality's got Miami was supposed to win that game seven. 
They had them 114-110, 65% Miami Miami expected to score 13 more points on threes Seven more points on finishes at the rim Three more on free throws Play 19% better offensively And that is what I Individual games I might be able to get onto Boston's side But overall, looking at this series And everyone's talking about how good defensively Boston has been And, and they are a good defensive team Their entire starting lineup doesn't really have like a weak link defensively that you can really pick on. You know, there's not, and they can they can switch pretty well, and so they're like they're a good defensive team. But let's compare what they've faced to what they're going to face. They have not faced one team operating on full strength offensively. Oh, and they face teams that aren't even like incredible offensive juggernauts to begin with. You know, like Milwaukee's never going to be like they'll have some numbers that'll look okay because they shoot a high clip from three sometimes. But like when Milwaukee gets into series and they're going to be more of like a muck it up type team with Giannis, you know, so they're not going to look like incredible offensively a lot of the time because that's not really who they are. And Miami is not at all. You know, Miami's like the typical punch you team. So now Boston did like did those two teams really play into what Boston. Like to Boston's strength, right? They didn't have a whole lot of offensive firepower. Boston's got a pretty good defense as it is. I think this might be a little bit of a shell shock for them. I agree 100%. I think Grant Williams is really going to have a hard time. Um, I think it's just Curry's going to be hounded by Smart. We all get that. We all understand that. Curry's kind of struggled with Smart on him. But I think the guy that's in line for a good series. Is Draymond Green um, nice. with his assists? Yeah, I agree. And what he can do, um, I really. So, do you, is there he, is there a play? Is there did you play him in any way? Is there like something that you can play on Draymond in the series? Or are you going to try to maybe just attack him game to game? Um, his assist prop is five and a half for game one. That's a little too juiced for me, but because it's minus one fifty, um, I've been kind of playing around on future prices. Um, you know, I want to see what I can find. I kind of have a dwindled down to three um obviously the first one like i was just mentioning was draymond greens because with how boston dips off the screen i think draymond's going to be in a line for a lot of assist opportunities um my next one and i kind of feel that he kind of got a little bit hosed in the um for the uh what was it the magic johnson award um i kind of like draymond green not draymond green andrew wiggins um he is somebody, he is currently at 40 to 1. Um, he's going to be the guy hounding Tatum, hounding Brown. Um, you know, he can get his offensively. And uh, Clay at 18 to 1 is really tempting. Those are kind of like the three that I'm kind of looking at right now. So Clay is at 18 to 1 for. Clay and Draymond are 18, and Wiggins is. Wiggins is 40 to 1. But I mean, like, you can throw like a quarter unit on, like, I, what I'm probably going to do is throw a quarter unit on Wiggins and then half unit on Thompson and Green. Yeah, so I I caught Clay because you and I are recording this on Wednesday night. I caught Clay Tuesday night at twenty two to one to win the MVP. Oh, yeah. I love that. That's one of my favorite plays. I I, I for all the reasons like you were saying. I think Curry is just going to draw a lot of attention. And doesn't it feel like Clay has the narrative too of just being back? They're going to talk about how Clay Thompson, it's incredible that he's back, what he's been through. If his numbers are good, even if they're not quite as good, I think the narrative is there for Clay to be sort of like 
Wow, he's a comeback player And we're going to give him finals MVP Because sometimes that's what it comes down to too, right? With the votes and, and, and with like that narrative starting to get built up Yeah, I mean it, it is all about narrative And what you've done for me lately um, Not really what you've done for like narrative And the story that can be told You know, Clay back in the finals After those knee injuries And if Smart does hold Curry in check That could easily happen um, Yeah, so I mean those are kind of the three guys I like uh, I mean, I get it. People really like Boston for a lot of reasons, but you know, I just really feel that. How can I say this bluntly? Marcus Smart, I love him to death, but he's not a lead guard, and I think that's just going to cost him mm-hmm. at the end I, of the day. Like we said, down the stretch in that game, you pointed out how many times it looked like there were moments, there were times where you probably wanted the ball in Tatum's hands, or uh, maybe running through Horford and and Marcus Smart, sort of. Well, what ends up happening is he kind of looks around for a moment And if nobody is going to go out there and, like, take it from him He's like, I got it Yeah You know? And and I'm And it's cool, like, sometimes it's nice Like, when he's playing really well And, like, the reason why he's in the NBA is because he has that attitude Yeah, and, you know, he has that It's me, you know, let's roll Um, Back to Tatum real quick Uh, His primary defender was Durant in the net series Primary defender in the Buck series was um, Wesley Matthews. In the um, Heat series, it was P.J. Tucker. And in this series, it's going to be Andrew Wiggins. Yep. I mean, that's a pretty big step up. Tucker went, Tucker's great, like last year. But this year, he looked old. He looked really old. Um, Wiggins, with what he could do, I think he's going to make Tatum a little bit uncomfortable. I think they're going to blitz Tatum a lot. Um Interesting to see how Kerr staggers the pool and um, Curry minutes just because both of them are a little bit lax defensively. Yeah, um, they may, and they may be better. like they may be with with Boston's size. You know, you may not be able to play both of them a lot at the same time because that Boston that would be a place that Boston could attack. Like if you've got Curry and Pool both out there, and they've got Smart, Tatum, Brown. Horford, Williams, they'll have someone like Smart just use his size and back yeah. you down, right? Put him in the post and they'll they'll force you to have Curry and Pool out on Brown or Tatum and then all of a sudden you're in you're in some trouble. It's going to be interesting to see what team mixes it up first. Mm-hmm. Who, who is forced to adjust to, right? Because yeah. it's sort of like at this point you've got teams that are really good here at the, at this point and they're going to try to impose their will before they they blink and adjust You know, they'll probably go a game game and a half And say, okay, let's see if we can come out And play our style and force The other team to adjust I just don't think Boston is going to be quite ready For this, because most of the league Wasn't ready for this, Eric Because we haven't seen this comp- Combination Really throughout the entire season We didn't see Clay and Draymond and Steph all healthy all together with pool with some of these bench guys like that have been Golden State not only do they have that those you know obviously their big three but their depth is what has really really made this team sort of put them over the hump having a guy like pool who when the others aren't you know aren't contributing having Porter and Bielitsa you know, who are veterans who have been around having Kuminga and Peyton, who are sort of youngsters who have helped them out in spots. They, they're pretty deep. They have a pretty solid bench. 
Yeah, they're and they have Wiseman. He's not even anywhere. To not be even in the, right now. Yeah. And so where uh, like um, they're in line for a great great run. It's gonna be interesting to see what Wiggins does. Um, because he's the he's the forgotten yeah. guy. Like right, we yeah. just had a conversation. You talked about him, but like. When you go through their team, you kind of forget that he's there, even though he continues to have good games because he does it sort of quietly. Even though he he threw that dunk down, that was that was pretty nasty. He's he's such a huge piece for them because and if I he mean, makes let's let's just take a minute. Like you know, there's a whole thing with him and the the vaccine at the beginning of the year. Um, he tried to get the religious exemption, didn't go through. Did we get anything from him, or did he just do what was best for the team and get his vaccine? Yep. You know what I mean? Like, he's just not a guy that causes a headache. Uh, All-star this year, um, rookie of the year. You know, he's – you know, he – I'm happy for him because we're kind of getting to see, like – because he was, was called Canadian Jordan when he came out, you know, kind of like – Oh, remember the tank? Everyone was talking yeah. about tanking for Wigan. You know, it was like he was he was the guy. You know, yeah. Um, and now, now he's here, and you know he's he's looking good. I hope he stays in Golden State. To be honest it, with you, you know, because like, it's all about the fit, right? We would have talked about Wiggins a few years ago when he was in places having to be the number one or the number two option, and it it just wouldn't have worked for him, unfortunately. And and that's what's hard for some players. You come into the league, and these expectations are put on you. Like it's not his fault. It's not his fault that he was a great college player and that he was the number one overall pick and that he's supposed to be the guy to save the franchise and that he's just not that person. You know, he's just not that. That doesn't mean he still can't be like a top 25 player in the NBA and one of the best basketball players in the world and a major contributor on a on a championship team. It's just yeah, he's... sometimes you just aren't a franchise dude and that doesn't mean he's a bad basketball player. It's sort of like... The perception we all thought he was supposed to be like the next guy, like you said, Canadian Jordan. But it's not—it's not a straight line for everyone. It's not no. linear, you know. Sometimes you go up, you go down. It's a roller coaster. You take uh, one step forward, two steps back, then two steps forward, then one back. And it is really cool to see him here because he is a super well-rounded basketball player. If you were creating the type of basketball player. That is the perfect fit in nowadays NBA. Andrew Wiggins is very close to like checking off all of the boxes you'd want. Yeah, every single one. Um, but you know, he, you know, he got the fit, got the system, got Kerr, who's a great, great coach. Um, you know, they have a great player development mental system going on there in Golden State. When you see the steps um, he's made, pools made, um, Kaminga's made. Uh, Mooney's been playing great. Um, they're in a great spot, you know, they for are. the future and everything. Um, you know, there's one other future bet and kind of contemplating locking in. Um, and that is Robert Williams, most rebounds plus 900. Um, I kind of think with Looney on the court, he's going to get a little bit more minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Draymond being out on the perimeter um, is going to kind of take Horford away from it. And, so um, then it comes down to yeah. like one on one, right? It's it's yeah. Williams versus Looney for for the boards is sort of how you're playing it. Yeah, and I mean I know there's some health concerns, but you know I kind of feel at nine to one there's definitely a little value on uh, on Williams to get that. You know throw throw a half a unit on that to get four and a half. I think that's a good position to be in just because 
if he's healthy and when Looney's on the court, he's going to be on the court. Um, so the, also, the, I want to kind of give a quick shout out to Williams real quick. Can you guess how many free throws he missed in the Eastern Conference Finals? Robert Williams? Yeah. No, that's a good question. Um, seven. Um, he missed as many as you and I did. Nice. Bobby Williams. Zero. 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 He missed zero. Granny, who was only getting like a couple of games. But for a but, big man to not be a liability like that, that's just extra points, man. I'm a big man. I mean, you know, two for two, two for two, two for two, four for four, one for one. You know, he's making three throws. And what's nice for him is that you don't have to be afraid of, of throwing him a lob late in the game or late in a quarter, like in that type of a situation where you're like, ah, okay, we only have a few possessions left. Let's run a, t- we got a timeout or we got a, we got the ball, a dead ball situation. Uh, we don't really want to make, run a play for a big, because if he gets fouled, that might be a waste. You don't feel like, and he's a really good lob threat and he's yeah, and- probably got the athleticism over Looney. So you may, you know, look to use that late in the game. That's a good, that's a good find. And, and it keeps him on the, the court. Thing, yep. And the thing I like about him is like, we need to remember when he came into the league, he was missing interviews. He overslept for his interview with the Celtics. And now he's completely transformed himself mm-hmm. to a reliable player. And that's yep. kind of like, as a coach, I kind of like to see that, you know, the, the growth there. Absolutely. Development, growth. A couple of uh, things I'm looking at playing here. So we're, we're kind of talking about the Warriors. And I, I'm leaning Warriors here. And I'm trying to find the best value of the way to play Warriors. So there are a couple I'm looking to play. The Warriors minus one and a half game. Is plus 148 So if the Warriors win 4-2 Or anything more than a game 7 You'd hit that So 4-0, 4-1, 4-2 And they'd be plus 148 There are Two in particular That if you want to just try to hit the nail right on the head Warriors 4-1 Is plus 430 But Warriors 4-2 Which is probably what I would predict Is plus 500 That's not not bad Because like can Boston win the series? Absolutely. But for the conversation that we're having and for our bets, I'm I think it's going to be Golden State. My handicap and everything I'm looking at leads me Golden State. So now I'm trying to find the best way to do that instead of just laying, you know, big the numbers at every game. If Golden State's favored, how can I best find the value? So I think those are three things that I might look to attack either the 4-2, I think, feels pretty nice. Hell, you could even play 4-1 and 4-2, both at plus 430 and plus 500. And if one of those results hits, you're fine. And the minus one and a half at plus one forty-eight would cover those also. And you could you'd hit them both if one of those hit uh, as well. Clay to win the MVP would be one of uh, the plays for me. I am looking. I want to play. I want to play something on the Boston side, like you just did for Williams. So I'm trying to figure something because I and I want it to be not necessarily for Boston to win, but for one of the players there to attack. I think. Overall, you know, we're talking about Wiggins too. I think he's going to make it difficult on Tatum. I think Tatum is still going to score, but just inefficiently. I think he's just going to be like really hard. So the one that I'm looking at for Tatum would be, you know, Tatum could average 28 in the series um, for plus 102. That doesn't have anything to do with Boston wins. And what I sort of like about that is that if he has one big game, like one forty-five point game, and the series ends up only going five, then his average is actually likely to be even higher in in defeat. So I think he may be like having a tough time scoring, but or having it like a tough time doing it easily, but still the guy that is going to have to do it because I don't, 
uh, there wasn't anything else that really jumped out to me. I like your Robert Williams one, actually. That was one that I I, I wasn't locked in on. But is there um, anything else on the Boston side? Because I can't. I want to play the one I was kind of looking at was top points for mm-hmm. Jalen Brown. Sure, and that's that's a good price, right? I mean, because if if Jaylen so, like Brown we're saying, if one twenty Curry's plus one thirty. Browns plus nine hundred. You got to figure you have the two best defenders in the series on the other two guys. On the other two, yeah. You know, yeah. And then that, you that's got Thompson after that at thirty to one. And it's not gonna like. Here's the thing, it will not be. We can eliminate so many of the guys below them, right? That yeah, it just I won't. Mean, like, it just won't be. So you can eliminate Draymond Green. You can eliminate some of the bigs. It's not going to be Horford. You know, it's it's not like there's a small outside chance it's someone like Marcus Smart, but very like very tiny. It's clay could be. It won't be anybody else on the Warriors. You know, so like now all of a sudden you're eliminating and you're down to just two or three that make sense, like clay and Jalen Brown at those prices. At those prices too, like Tatum at minus one ten. If you here's if you like Tatum. Just play the one that I said instead of the minus 110, right? Play Tatum at to score over 28 and a half at plus money. Because that doesn't even yeah. mean he has to lead the, the series or anything to do with winning or losing. He could just get that number. So that's I agree. I wouldn't I would not play Tatum or Curry to be the leading scorer in the series at those numbers. Those seem way too short because they're like it may be way too hard for them. Yeah. It's just it's just one of those things, you know, like I just don't think I think there's value on Brown. I think there's value on Clay. Um, with me more than likely playing the Clay MVP, um, yep. I could still see Clay winning the MVP and Brown giving his. I mean, mm-hmm. I just I don't know. Like, there's always like little interesting things you can play, and like you said, you kind of windle it down. I someone was trying to argue me Al Horford as a case. Um, you know, if Boston does win, and for him to be MVP, if he has like two good Al Horford games. Um, but I just kind of feel that if um, I, I don't know, he, it's just like with how young Boston is, and let's face it, they are still kind of like a young franchise. Not really a young franchise, but a young team that's never been here this before. Mm-hmm. For them to go in and beat this Warriors team would be a pretty big statement. Yes, um, that's the thing that's just kind of has me on the Warriors. I think the Warriors are going to win in terms of um, series prices. Like I'll be honest. It wouldn't surprise me if they sweep them. Me too. Me neither. It would, it would, it I don't, would surprise me if it's four two. Yeah. Know, so it, that's that's something in that range. I don't think it's going to go seven. I I just am a little like sort of like what you said. I think too many people are kind of looking at Boston and going, well, they played in these really tough games, and you know, Boston beat the war. Like they're going through who Boston beat, and none of those teams were at full strength, and Boston still like twice. Didn't look that great down the stretch, so I, yeah, I'm. And that's that's not let's not forget what happened last year. Um, you know, Phoenix won the first two games. Paul got hurt, and then Milwaukee won the next four. So I mean, stuff can stuff can change on the dime. And I thought one of the things that you and I did really well last year was we we're kind of able to find that fringe guy, have it be like a Middleton or a Holiday or even someone like a Lopez or a Bridges. Who had a bad game, and then we circled back to him the next game. Absolutely, yeah. I so, th- that so. was 
We we played it a lot like football games, you know, because that's how generally we play the football. Is because in football games it's so different because you you know, it, and that's how it is in playoff basketball because each game is such a big deal, you know. So when when a player has a or a team have a really bad performance one game or one week, it really sits with you for the next couple of days. You know, in playoff basketball, it's different because you never play back to back days. So then you always have two or three days to think about it, and you're gonna come out. Completely opposite and really focused The next game almost always And because of what Happened the last time your number Is always just a little bit undervalued Always Mm -hmm. always a little bit Of value there so yeah that was I think in the in the last year year and a half In basketball we we started sort of carrying it Over because it's it's Harder to do that in the regular season right sometimes People go through streaks which they still will Do in the playoffs but you really feel The bounce back a lot more when These games are are so important Yep, yep, yep So Eric, we will be covering the NBA Finals Previewing the games before every game We're going to try to go between like an hour to about 30 minutes before Because what's nice is it's so much fun when we've been doing them live on on like Sundays And we get a few people to interact with us Because that's what I, I love I know you've been a big fan recently of trying just to get more people watching your Twitch streams and your live streams and commenting. So anyone that's out there listening, anytime you're watching any of our uh, any of our content, any of our live streams, we'd really love to hear from you. If you have a a play, if you have a question for myself or Eric about why we have made a certain play, or if a question about a play that you have, if we have an opinion on that, just because if you like us, then you'll listen. If you don't, you can just cross it right out and do the opposite of what we say. We don't mind. Well, hopefully we can help you uh, either way, whether it's a play or a fade. So. Uh, we're recording a little earlier this week just because it made more sense to get to get our conversation. We would normally talk on Thursday night, but now we'll sort of record around uh, around the the final game since these there's only uh, this one series that remains. So tell us uh, what else you have coming up uh, this week as uh, we'll preview this Thursday. So Thursday Sunday, right, is what we start with. Uh, yep, Thursday Sunday, and then you know it's going to shift over to. Um... Um, to Boston. Boston. I'm not. I don't really have the series in front of me, so I'm not yeah. I think sure it's Thursday, like Sunday, and then they get a few extra days. I think it comes back. Uh, I'll check right now. But I think it's Wednesday, uh, middle of the week. So yeah, Thursday, Sunday for our first two games. We'll preview those. Thursday, our preview show is going to start around uh, around eight o'clock Eastern time. Probably about eight eight fifteen. We'll be in that range, and we'll lead you right up to the game with myself, with Eric, with Leo, and then Sunday we'll do the same thing. We'll be about an hour or so before. The game on Sunday and we'll get you all set up Leading you right into the game with plays And um, props And that way we'll if for any reason There's any injury issues Any sort of last minute News we'll have everything available To tell you because right now it looks like I think they said Robert Williams questionable But I'd imagine They're going to give it a go with him after Having these few days off and you know He he, he went last time out so I, I think that was just sort of a, um, You know Playing it safe but even Marcus Smart Was uh, was removed from the injury report So looks right now like for the most Part we'll have a pretty uh, healthy two Teams for the series which is really what we want Right we don't we don't want to see injuries that's no Fun when when guys keep going down No we want a healthy Healthy squad no questions asked their best Against their the other team's best So what kind of stuff you have uh, coming up this Weekend uh, on uh, on your pod on uh, All the your content Um you know Um Tomorrow, Thursday, after the NBA show, uh, Jim and I interviewed the X-League MVP for the Spring Fever show we, awesome. we did. That awesome. was a 
that was a fun interview. I mean, we talked from everything. He tells a crazy story, which happened at Wake Forest, played Appalachian State back in the day. Um, curry, pizza, you know, what it's like playing Japan and everything. Great time. Um, my podcast comes out Friday. Jim will be on that. USFL bets. My boy Brandon will come on, and I'll talk what's next for the Heat. And then, uh, yeah, then you, me, and Leo on Sunday, and then the BTV um, UFC show on Saturday. Tons of stuff. Make sure to give Eric a follow there on social media. Well, buddy, we've uh, we've made it. So once we uh, we finish up here in a week or two. I guess we'll we'll if if you're up for it we'll let, we'll shift the focus on over and then when we talk each week we'll start uh, we'll start looking at NFL you know we can start previewing NFL we'll do some like divisions some fantasy stuff some totals we haven't done uh, our little uh, over unders where we go through uh, some of our teams and bets so maybe we'll uh, we'll do NBA maybe we'll take like a week off and then we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll shift our focus and uh, and fire up some NFL stuff. Sounds good, my man. Sounds good. I already got my tight end sleeper already picked out. Ooh, I love it. I mean, I I love just even sort of getting excited to get excited about prepping for NFL. If you don't like NFL, is is so is so much fun to prep for. I love the process. If you don't like the process of that of this kind of stuff, honestly, you that's why we'll help you out with it. But if you don't like the process of it, it's going to be hard for you to make a whole lot of money as a gambler because. You gotta like the work. You gotta like putting in the work and uh, and finding, like you said, you're excited about the hidden gems. There's nothing like doing the prep work and then that like you get that little antenna go up, right? The hairs on the back of your neck go up because something pops out at you that you just feel yeah. like, oh, I, I know a lot of people aren't seeing this. I know this is something that's not like being talked about. It's it it, it happens to me a little bit more often in racing because I can. I'm I'm looking at races so much and I'll see like a 15 or 20 to one shot where I'm like, Oh, I know this is a horse that a lot, not a lot of people are going to bet. It's, it's why we do this, right. To get that feeling like that, like you said about your tight oh. end right now. Oh my God. I feel so grimy. Like I, like I wrote a little piece like <laughs> post next week. I'll probably get people saying I'm a moron, but you know, I just, you know what I mean? Like you just kind of look at it and like the thing with football is it's like risk. Like these coaches mm-hmm. have tendencies and you look at, when you look at this coach's tendency and see what he likes to do, you're kind of like, Oh, I guess, you know what? That does kind of make sense. So, you know, I'm interested to see, you know, interested to see if I'm right or wrong. So I'm looking forward to it. Eric, buddy. Thank you so much. Look, looking forward to talking to you uh, all throughout the weekend. And then um, uh, again, we'll, uh, we'll check in next week and see, uh, see where the series sits. Sounds good. My friend. Uh, make sure to give Eric a follow there. You'll hear him each and every week on That's What G Said and over at Better Than Dot Vegas. Don't go anywhere, folks. Still a lot more to discuss on That's What G Said. racing fans many of us have been using the drf the daily racing form for years studying the races keeping up to date on news with all the articles i remember looking for a copy at the local liquor store or picking one up at the local racetrack wherever i was going now it's even easier and cheaper than ever 
to use DRF with DRF.com and the newly optimized DRF Mobile. You can get all the tracks that you want to bet and handicap. Past performances that are mobile optimized for on-the-go handicapping on your phone. So you go to DRF.com from your mobile device, no additional cost. Tap the calendar icon on the top left. It opens all of the options for past performances and for the tools that are available. One click to bet now and DRF bets. Get real-time odds and scratches on race day. You can tap on any horse and you get those same DRF past performances that you're familiar with with a larger font for your mobile display. One click to formulator for charts for replays if you get the formulator version and even on the classic past performances you get the home screen with horses with odds with buyers you get a lifetime buyer speed figure graph you can rotate your phone for the best view and any horse that you click on you'll see the running lines you can easily move from horse to horse the same data as those traditional classic DRF past performances you get an interactive format which is Very similar to the DRF Classic version that you're used to on the desktop. Every card includes live data updated instantly with those scratches. And so you get the accessibility from desktop to phone, cross-device functionality. You can take your notes and save them from one device to the next and then access your account on any of your devices. On-the-go handicapping and wagering multiple formats to view you got the overview page with recent speed figures current day's odds easy access to expert selections and analysis you got the buyer speed figure graph with lifetime buyer speed figures and chart notes for every horse and you got those traditional drf past performances that are just newly optimized for your mobile phones they are constantly upgrading improving and making everything easier for you to get your handicapping done at drf.com better you want to spread your pony knowledge Download the Stable Duel app and play today. Remember, every Friday morning, 10 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time, this weekend in Stable Duel. It is a free show. It's a preview show for our best bets all weekend long in all the major Stable Duel contests. Even if you're someone who may not be playing in those Stable Duel games, you'll really enjoy the hour, hour and a half or so that we spend with Barry Spears and with Matt DeSantis, myself, we give out all horses that are like no less than four to one. There's never really even four to one, like five to one plus, because we just want to help give out big prices. That's the point of the show. We have a lot of fun. We get off on some tangents, and we're always using the DRF past performances. So we watch race replays, we look at charts, we really show you the handicapping process too, and some of the reasoning for why we select some of the horses that we select. So this weekend with stable duel games uh Penn National has a couple big ones it's Penn Mile Night 50 bucks $4000 entry uh $4000 prizes $50 entry Gulfstream 
Hawthorne, Santa Anita, all games on Friday. Saturday, Stable Duel has Gulfstream, Hawthorne, and Santa Anita games. Sunday, Gulfstream, Emerald, and Santa Anita. And then Monday, Parks and Assiniboia. Assiniboia is a new track joining the mix and uh, lots of big games there in the, uh, the weeks and months to come. Stable Duel. Get your entries in and play, race, win. Let's start talking some racing here. Let's get the Santa Anita best bets for Friday. Get those past performances out for June the 3rd. We're going to look at races 2, 6, and 7. In race number 2, they're going to go 6 furlongs on the turf course. It's a 50 starter allowance. I like the 4 Commander Kai for Mark Glatt. So his last 2 races... We could talk a little bit about the March 27th race where he broke right with the leaders, but he got shuffled back a little bit to third. He lost a couple lengths. He lost some momentum. He moved back up into contention, but he was a little wide that day chasing lone speed. It's a better-than-looks race on paper. Comes back May the 8th. He misses the break. He's back to last early, and the winner, New Park, went wire-to-wire that day. And Commander Kai did move up inside the rail. He angled around. He closed pretty well. Now you're going to get a slight cutback from him, and I think he's going to get a better beginning, and he should be in striking range. Commander Kai, he's 5-1 to one on the morning line. If he's anything around 7-2, to two, we'll make a win wager there, and a good horse to use in all of your exotics there on Friday. Let's turn to race number 6. Mile and an eighth on the turf course, an optional 50. I'm going to go to the 7 in here. Half Barber Bingy. So he is not fast early. He's going to drop way out of it. But he had even a worse than normal start on May the 8th, the last time we saw him. He was just way out of it. Almost 15 lengths out at one point. And then he tipped to the outside. And once he started to build some momentum, he really closed well. He that's I mean, he's a stone-cold closer. A mile and an eighth should be no problem for him. And the outside draw shouldn't be a problem. I think he's just going to try to tip to the outside and come on a roll in late. That's the number seven in race number six, five to one on the morning line. I wouldn't want to take too much shorter than that just because of his running style. But if he is in that five to one range, that feels very fair and worthy of a few bucks. Horse I like the most on Friday, I'm the most intrigued by, is in the seventh race, 50 starter allowance. The number one, Willie the Cobbler. He's 15 to 1 on the morning line. So his last four races have been on the turf. Put a line right through him. That's not relevant. This is going a mile on the dirt. And he's better on the dirt by far. So let's look at the last time he was on the dirt in his races then. December the 4th, he's behind a horse named Vittorio, who's a multiple winner for Callahan. The race before that, He's behind a horse named Arum in a first-level allowance race. Arum won back-to-back races, both with like 90, 91 buyers. October the 23rd. He's fourth. He's only beaten two lengths in actually a pretty solid race behind a horse named Barbwire, who had won two in a row and, and earned a pretty nice speed figure in winning that race. September the 25th, he's behind a horse named Risk and Reward, who was three for five, got a 95 buyer in that race. How about August the 29th, behind a horse named... Medina Spirit, Rock Your World, Stiletto Boy in the Shared Belief. So, he's just a better dirt horse. All of his recent, the last recent dirt races have been against way, way better. Look at when we saw him in a starter allowance on the dirt going a mile on the bottom of the page. He was an 8-1 to winner at Del Mar. That's this level. That's this spot for him. Willie the Cobbler. 15 to 1 on the morning line. Ha now, Bill. Ha, William the Cobble. 
cobble it for me, Billy, in Santa Anita's seventh race on Friday. That's Friday over at Santa Anita. A couple best plays for you. Let's move on over and uh, talk a little Penn National for Friday. So we're looking Friday, Penn National, June the 3rd. I'm going to take a look at races 3, 4, 5, and 6. That's the uh, the stakes portion of the Penn National card. So the third race goes a mile and a 16th on the turf. It's uh, the Leopard for Phillies and Mares, three-year-olds and up Pennsylvania breads. I like the six Wildcat Cartridge, who's going to get back to turf after running on the dirt for a while. The last turf race, she chased a wire-to-wire winner. She's overall a multiple turf winner. She was, on April the 25th, she was close up, fifth. She was about two or three lengths off, and she kind of backed up a bit. Then she moved through nicely down on the inside for third. Wildcat Cartridge. I'll be using in all exotics, 8 to 1 on the morning line. If we can get over six, we'll make a win. We get to the fourth race. It's the, with anticipation, mile and a 16th on the turf for three-year-old Pennsylvania breads. I like the six in here. Missing the big dog. This Bourne is fantastic off of a long layoff. They are 13 for their last 28 off a plus 180-day layoff. That is 46% with a $3.19 ROI. Two of those races were going long. So in similar conditions as the race on Friday, the, the fourth race. Missing the big dog. Has some nice form coming out of open races and now back in. With Pennsylvania breads. You look at wait for it. It's kind of a measuring stick for this field. And wait for it is going to be a little shorter price than missing the big dog. Missing the big dog has been right there and very competitive with that one. I'm going to give the six horse a little bit of a look in here. Missing the big dog eight to one on the morning line. We move to the Penn Oaks. It's race number five, a mile on the turf course. I like the five, a little love and luck, who comes in from Indiana and most recently was a runner up in a stakes, was only beaten in neck, and broke in a little bit from the rail, was close up, was right with the leaders, but had to take back a little bit on the inside, and was sixth, about four lengths off, moved in between horses, and was looking for room, had nowhere to go, found some room late, and just missed. I think she might be the fastest in here. I wouldn't be shocked if she ends up on the lead, because there is nobody here that's really quick early on. The number five, a little love and luck with Paco jumping aboard. I think she'll get aggressive. In race number six, it's the grade two, Penn Mile. Mile on the turf course here. Let's look at the four, 0235. His turf form is just not bad at all, overall. Look at his eight turf tries. Six of them have been in the money. Uh, you have another effort where he was fourth, only beaten a couple lengths. That was on April the 23rd when he was taken back to last in a small field when they went 49-2 and two to the half. He made a big wide move, but he had to go from last to widest of all, so he flattened out a little bit late, coming off a couple-month break. May the 5th, he was in some traffic early after a good start. Then he had to steady. He backed up on the inside. He was about 5th or 6th, 5 lengths off. He, he wanted to go. He was completely blocked. He was traveling well. He moved around and in between horses. He angled out. He just couldn't really find a seam. It was kind of sneaky there. 0, 2, 3, 5. The number 4. He's 8 to 1 on the morning line. If we can get anything over 5, we'll make a win wager and we'll be playing in all exotics there. That's Penn National for Friday. Some nice stakes races on the Friday evening card. Give them a look. We've got four horses pegged that are all 8 to 1 on the morning line. Make sure we uh, demand those value lines. You'd Won about five or six on most of them. That's for Friday over at Penn National. We're going to move along 
talk a little Saturday racing. Before we do, we have to talk about Cindy Carava, full-service realtor and one of the longtime sponsors of That's What She Said podcast. Now, she can help you out with buying, selling, leasing, really anything you need in the world of real estate. Her website, C-I-N-D-Y-C-A-R-A-V-A.com. You know, you need help with home improvement. She will connect you with the right type of vendors, gardeners, landscapers, painters, all sorts of great professionals that she's worked with and has uh, familiarity with. Maybe you need uh, some help with the the loan process. She'll connect you with a lender that's going to make that so much easier for you. They're going to tell you what to do and expedite that process for you. Maybe you're just curious how much your home is worth. She'll do a free market analysis of your home's value. C-I-N-D-Y-C-A-R-A-V-A dot com. You can find all the listings there on the website, former um, projects that she's worked on. You can get reviews of her on Yelp and on Zillow. She's one of the kindest and most genuine people I've ever met. She just wants to help you out. She's going to make your life a lot easier. And she focuses in on the San Gabriel Valley, North San Diego County. But if she's, if you're not in that area, if you're in a different state or you're somewhere else where you need help, contact Cindy. She will put you in touch with someone in the area that she knows, that she trusts, and that will make your life a lot easier. C-I-N-D-Y-C-A-R-A-V-A dot com. Time for some Saturday racing. Let's go through the Louisiana Downs Saturday card. Remember, I'll be out there at Louisiana Downs on the broadcast each and every day, helping out with pre-race analysis and then some post-race thoughts and possibly some horses to watch back and keep an eye on moving forward. Always a seven-race card. Always a pick four that starts in the fourth, a pick five that starts in the third. They are low takeout, 15%. No more jackpot wagers there. And they are starting to really get some big, big fields. Let's dive into the Saturday card. So we're looking at June the 4th over at Louisiana Downs. We're looking at race number one. 12,500 non-two claimers, five furlongs the distance. I like the three Allies episode. Who's going to go second start off the ba- uh, the bench and gets back to the turf. She's a six-year-old mare. And she kind of reared up at the start last time out. And she, that was in the slop. She had absolutely no shot. She was five-plus off chasing. She should be with the top few early in this race. I'm not going to be shocked if she's right on the lead or close to it here with the inside draw. I think Allie's episode has a big shot. She returns to the turf. She's proven on the grass. I like the three in here. The 1A, my lovely Charlie, is pretty solid off of the two turf tries. Showed a little bit of speed. Kind of moved early last time out against 12 in a similar spot at Evangeline. And then Previously, last year at Evangeline was a good second in a turf sprint. So my lovely Charlie's probably the measuring stick. You'll get the two-for-one action with the entry. The four life of Saturdays gets claimed by Sarah Delaney and goes right to the turf. And this barn has been very solid with their recent turf, uh, with their recent first off the claim numbers. They've won with four of their last 24. Very improved in that department. Three, one A, four in the first at LAD. In race number two, I love the three in here, Dream Halo, who will go second start off about a five-month break. He's going to go seven furlongs on the dirt now, and in his last start going six, he was close up. He was about three deep. He was pressing the lead, but they were not going very fast at all, and this guy did all he could to press the leader, D2. Things were just too early, uh, too easy for D2 up front. That was his first start in five months, so... Probably was a, a little more aggressive. I think he gets more of a, an off-the-pace type trip in here. Should be better at seven furlongs where he's proven. 
And he had to work a little bit hard pressing. I just don't think that's his best style. Dream Halo, the number three. Top selection for me, Caprock Minor the six. That's the big outside speed. That's who I have in the second spot. And then the two, Bajin Cash, coming off that runner-up effort was right in front of Dream Halo. But I thought Dream Halo had to do a little bit more of the dirty work and has a, a little more upside in here. Three, six, two in the second. In race number three at LAD, we've got uh, $7,500 restricted claimers. Seven and a half on the turf course here. I like the five Kodiak Sky. He's been on the turf five times, and in none of those races has a horse with his running with her running style won. She's a seven-year-old mare who's a really a stone-cold closer. And what I like is that she's actually exiting a couple dirt sprints where that might sharpen her up a little bit. Now, I don't think she's going to be on the lead or anything, but maybe she won't have to be dead last. You'll notice she's not a win machine, and a lot of that has to do with her running style. If she's in smaller fields or in races where they don't go that fast early, all that she can hope for is running on late for a minor award. In this particular race, I can see versions of this race where the one Miss Billy Kay goes to the, tries to go to the lead. The two, Tuffology, coming out of some shorter sprints, five and a half, six furlongs, tries to flash speed. The three, Caged Bear, coming out of some shorter dirt races, tries to get a little closer. But the four... Kalaja is going to want to be close also. So we may have a small field where you have those few plus the seven Morak, another horse who's going to be getting a little bit more distance and wouldn't be shocked with the wide draw for them to try to get aggressive with Jose Guerrero aboard. This could finally be a turf race where Kodiak Sky gets the type of pace shape she needs to come running late. The number five, Kodiak Sky, is the play with the four, Kalaja, and the one, Billy K, underneath. Five, four, one in the third. Race number four is a Louisiana bred maiden special weight for three year olds and up, five and a half the distance. I'm looking at the five, check me out. March the sixth was behind the very nice Jack, Bob, and Larry in, her, in his debut. Then on March the 27th, he exits a really tough race behind three next out winners. The winner that day won a Louisiana bred. The second place finisher won a Louisiana bred maiden special weight next out by 21 lengths. Third place finisher won a Louisiana bred maiden special weight next out. Eighth place finisher won a maiden 12th claimer next out. The eight horse, he's a sexy zong, was with the top group, then backed up, was sitting fourth, was in the second flight, and was up to up to challenge and contend early in the stretch. Faded late. She took the lead before. Getting uh, getting challenged. This little turnback should help. He's a sexy zong. The 10, the first time starter, King of Broken Hearts. Could be very live in here. His dam won her debut. She won her first two starts. She was a six-time winner overall. And four of those wins were Louisiana-bred stakes races. And his lone sibling was second in her only start. The number three, Fiery Playboy. I wouldn't talk you off this guy. The dam won. Both siblings won. Now moves into the Shane Wilson barn, which Wilson is incredible with new acquisitions. One of the horses from the race that fire uh, Fiery Playboy exits has come back to win. Next out, that was a maiden claimer, but it was against Open Company. And you have some nice local works for the new barn. The sixth bloom might be able to uh, be a little better here. Going second start off the bench. Hadn't raced from January to May. 
was sitting third, then kind of backed up a little bit and just couldn't go on with the top two that day, should be a little better in this spot with that race under his belt. What's wrong with the entry? Son Carlos was a runner-up against Open Company flashing speed last time out. Now, the real reason why I'm not quite as high on the 1A and the 1, they would be no shock. Just the draw and the way the race sort of projects, it looks like the 3 Fiery Playboy is going to flash some speed. I think Renati is going to be close, even cutting back. I wouldn't be shocked to see, you know, others like the 9 Thunder takes the lead, the 10, the first-time starter flashing speed. He's a sexy Zong, shouldn't be too far out of it. And Check Me Out was pressing and comes out of a couple really quick sprint races where they were going fast early. This race could be very fast early. That's why I'm not in love with the entry quite as much where they're drawn and with San Carlos maybe getting in a tough spot. But it would absolutely be no shock. Flashed some speed from the rail, kind of broke in, but fast, and, and was a good second. Theo Dioro, Theo Dior, the damn one did debut sprinting on the dirt, but the barn is not great with first-time starters over the last five years. A couple siblings that this uh, damn did produce, and they both won. Wide open. Fourth race to kick off your pick four there. Fifth race, $12,500 claimers, non-winners of three on the turf course here. I'm looking at the five. Top 10 Duchess. She had a good start. She was sitting third in her most recent race. And then she got caught in between. She got shuffled back to fourth. She didn't seem to love being in between horses and then down on inside. That was against open breads. Now she drops a level and moves in with Louisiana breads. And the last time we saw her in a spot like this, she was finishing third here at Louisiana Downs in a really good race. I think she fits the best in here. I think she's the horse to beat. I like her most. Five, two, Lady Be Gone. Her turf form back in August was not bad. She's sort of three deep. Her turf race back in August, where she was kind of three deep in between. Her two turf races, she really didn't have much of a shot the way that those races were playing out. So I would use her at least underneath. The one, the missing piece, the three would be the others in here. But this is going to be a single for me in exotics with the five top ten duchess. Race number six, a non-three allowance, six and a half furlongs on the dirt. Another race that looks like there might be a good amount of speed. Because it's at six and a half, I'm going to go to a horse coming from off the pace, and that's the four cameo dancer. He got pushed back to last in a field of four. He was in between horses, then he was inside. He moved into contention at the top of the lane. He was up to within two, but a little bit flat because he was just in a small field and at the mercy of the race shape there. Could, could really get some pace to chase in this one. The number eight, R Blue Jay, is proven at seven and a half furlong. So with the outside draw, he could sit nicely. Gosh, he looked like he was going to win his last race. He was close up fourth. He loomed up at the top of the lane to take the lead. And I thought he was going to win easy. But Sammy Dancer Jr. battled back on the inside. R Blue Jay in the second spot. The two, Golden Passage. If he didn't draw the rail... I would have picked him on top. I'm I'm just worried what trip he's going to be able to work out from there. He may have to be a little farther back than he would like, and that could make things difficult for him late. But if he doesn't get into traffic, the type of trip that he can sit is the type of trip I'm looking for and thinking the winner in this race might get. JR's Pacifico was very good winning on uh, May the 17th. Now, that was on the turf, but he has one on the dirt, and he is really quick. And now moves into the Carl Broberg barn, so could expect some 
even more improvement there. The three silver ratio is very fast, but I'm worried that he's drawn in between other speeds. JR's Pacifico is going to be fast. Golden Passage, who knows what they're going to have to do with him. Scrappy already is really quick and has been pressing really quick paces. So I'm I'm a little cold on silver ratio. The five Scrappy already I, I have sort of with silver ratio. I'm, I'm worried that they may be battling and at six furlongs, I don't know if they're going to be able to win the battle and win the war. Let's get to the seventh race. Maiden, $10,000 claimer, six furlongs on the dirt course. I'm looking at the nine orbital star. We really don't know how good he is, but he comes in from Oaklawn. He really couldn't keep up with those tougher foes. He draws well. He cuts back. He might be able to get a nice trip on the outside and, and have a little pace to run into. I think he will show a lot more than what we've seen in this spot. The four speedy G gets back to the dirt in his turf try on May the 17th, going five furlongs. He broke on top. He got some pressure to the outside. He had the lead. Even late in the stretch, he just tired in the final stages. He's quick. The three, Kissmeister, he's worth a look on the drop alone. The third place finisher from that race, meant for me, came back to win a maiden special weight right here at Louisiana on May the 29th, and he lost to a horse who won by 23. It's just really tough to get a feel for the talent level, but at a price, sure, toss him into a pick four or two. The eight, lose arrow. Was a pretty good runner-up last time out. He was sitting fourth early, about three or four lengths off. And he was a little wide into the turn. And it's like a little wide in the stretch, but he kept coming late. And now he turns back. Seems like he's improving. And that was his first start for the newborn. Then you've got the the one. You know, what do you do with the, with goodbye Charlie? Who comes in and, and, and goblin the two for one entry? I'm really not. I'm okay if we try to maybe play against Rooster Run. I'm 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 okay maybe letting him beat beat me in this spot. Nine four three, but also use a eight and one in other spots. Not sure what you want to do with the six Rooster Run, but that one I'm uh I'm not all that high on. So that's Saturday Louisiana Downs. Let's head on over to Santa Anita for Saturday. You get those past performances out for June the fourth. We're looking at a uh, race number one. I like the six Clayton Delaney. Who had a slow start from the rail, was last, was inside, was chasing lone speed. He had to move through some traffic inside and was sneaky passing horses late in between. Nice gallop out, second start off, the long layoff. Clayton Delaney is going to stretch out, and he has shown success going longer. He's proven at all the way up to a mile and an eighth, so he'll be sitting a little closer here and maybe not having to deal with quite as much traffic. The number six, Clayton Delaney, in race number one at Santa Anita. He's 8-1 to one on the morning line. Let's move to race number five. Never mind, I'd find somebody like you. I wish nothing but the best for you. Don't forget me. I beg you remember you said sometimes in love and love. Little Adele? You guys know where I'm going here. Adele, the number one. She will uh she'll move into the George Papa Padromo bar and she's coming off a good start where she was tucked in. Um she tucked in from the outside of the two path. She was fifth about two or three lengths off, and then she gets caught in between horses, and she's traveling well, and she just had absolutely nowhere to go, no chance really there, and until it was too late, she's trying to look around for some room. 
Adeli now gets the inside draw. Should be able to save all the ground. Try to pick out a spot there. Hello? Little Adele. Who doesn't love Adele? Never mind. Let's move on to race number nine for our third and final play at Santa Anita on Saturday. We've got the number six there, Conch Daddy. I've got the Conch, folks. Time for me to talk. Conch Daddy is now going to go third start off the long layoff. He's going to cut back, and there's just not a ton of other speed in here. I think Quintessence goes. I think you might get one more bid with the blinkers on, forwardly placed. Conch Daddy on the cutback, third start off the long, long layoff. Can he sit like third in here? Drayden Van Dyke is up. I like him a little bit better on the grass than Mario. Conch Daddy, 8-1 to one on the morning line. If we can get anything over 5, we'd make a win wager there. That is Santa Anita for Saturday, three best plays. Good luck there. A couple prices for you at Santa Anita Saturday. Let's head to Sunday. Let's talk a little Sunday Louisiana Downs. Get the past performances out for Sunday, June the 5th. So race number one is a mile, about a mile on the turf course. 12-5 claimers, non-winners of two on the year, non-winners of two since December 5th. I'm going to look at the six-horse Big Bobby Brown. We played this guy last time. Love me some Bobby Brown. Every little step I take. So he's going to go third start off the long layoff. He's going to stretch back out to a mile now. He's going to drop. That May 8th race was won by a wire-to-wire winner, and we've already seen two horses from that race come back to win next out. Fourth-place finisher won a first-level allowance next out. Sixth-place finisher, McLean, won an optional claimer next out. Big Bobby Brown in the mix for me. The two, Space Mountain. Woo! Longest line, oldest ride, Space Mountain. Ric Flair, Space Mountain. He's an uh, old... Nine-year-old with some back class, and he, he kind of woke up last time out. I like when I see horses like this with a wake-up win. You want to probably use them right back in some of your exotics. Picking Roses was bumped a bit at the start, came closing late, and was behind the seven, More Ice. More Ice was really impressive last time, but More Ice kind of got a great trip. He looked like he was about to get into some trouble, and then the rail just opened up beautifully, and he exploded. And Pickin' Roses tried to follow him, but was just way behind. 6-2-3-7 in the opener at Louisiana on Sunday. We go to race number two. We've got Louisiana Breds, Phillies, and Mares. Three-year-olds and up five and a half furlongs on the dirt course. I like the four first, the first time starter. I just don't think there are any monsters in this group. Malformed is a firster for Ron Fauché. He's not been great recently. With his first-time starters, he's on a little bit of a, a poor stretch. But overall, when you dive back into the last five years, you can see super competent and very capable with a, the right type of first-time starter. And I think this is the right type of field. Malform's Dam won her second start. She crossed the wire first in two of her first four starts. She actually tried grade one company. She's produced three foals to race. All of them won. One of them won their debut at Louisiana. We've seen Precocity in the pedigree, local works for a capable first timeout barn in a race that doesn't seem to have anyone that scares the heck out of you. The three-horse cute Dinero queen, she's the one to catch. So I think you have to use her in any type of exotics that you're playing. She really kept trying hard down on the inside. That was her only, that was her, you know, her first start really on a fast dirt course and she was dropping in with Louisiana bread. She, she's the measuring stick, no doubt. Ours and theirs, 
She came running late at Fairgrounds. I'm just a little bit worried that there may not be that much speed in here to set up for her. So I'll actually prefer the one isn't it time over her 4-3-1-2 in the second. As we move to race number three, about a mile on the turf course here. I love the five early dismissal. He got caught. She got caught in between horses. She was pressing. She had to back out of a spot on the inside. She lost about a length of positioning. And then even more um, as things were tight and she had to continue to sort of back out. She angled around. She came on. And she actually outfinished American Deputy, who ended up getting a much better trip that day. Early dismissal, the number five I'll be using along with the six. Charlie's gal, who gets off the rail, settled inside towards the rail. And that wasn't her only turf try. She was sixth, about six lengths off. She made an early move to the outside, up into contention. And if you look at the race that she exit, we've already seen two next out winners. And she's going to put two starts together for the first time. There's a lot of reasons to believe that Charlie's gal could show a much improved effort here. The one American deputy will come running from the inside, saved ground. Wouldn't be shocked if they try to show a little more speed because she kind of hung a little bit when she moved to the lead last time out. 5-6-1. Race number four, maiden 5,000 claimers, five and a half furlongs on the dirt course. The eight horse, Shans Lane. She's going to come into the Joe Foster barn for the first time. She's a six-year-old mare, and it's really hard to look past her because she's run the best races against better, so she drops. She exits a top or she enters a top barn, and that's really good with this type of move. Joe Foster, the last five years with a trainer change at Louisiana Downs, 13 for 44. Excellent. So the eight will be pretty tough in here. I would use the nine, Houston Miracle, blinkers on, slow start, was racing kind of off the inside, was three wide, back, you know, kind of made a little move up to about three, three and a half lengths off. Was upside, was making her second start. Blinks on, comes in from Oaklawn. The one fibrillator drops, comes in from Oaklawn. The lack of speed hurts, but she does still feel like a top-tier contender in this race. In the fifth, 5,000 non-winners of two. Good luck here. I mean, you can really make cases for many. Sloopy's Halo might be the quickest sprinter stretching out. Then you've got the seven, Madam Pie, who's actually in, in pretty good form right now, but her best races may be in the slop. The 9, Vicious Velma, she's probably the best right now, but she's drawn wide and might have to deal with other speed in here. The 1, Stacy's Racy, I actually think she can show a little improvement and save some ground and maybe be in a good spot. The 5, Backgate Bell, she has some excuses for some of those recent races at Oaklawn Park. You know, you can go back to some pretty good races here at Louisiana Downs last year. The 3, Emma's Ruler, was a fast closing second last time out against better. So many ways to go. I thought this was a brutally difficult race. Six, seven, nine, one, five, three. I put him in that order. And what's nice is I'll probably single the eight in the pick four to start in the race before. So it'll give you the opportunity to really spread out if you want in this spot. Race number six, we've got Louisiana Bread First Level Allowance Company, six furlongs on the dirt. The two reckless ransom. Was close up, was in the two path, but had to take back a bit. Got squeezed, lost three lengths or so, was chasing lone speed. That was against open breads. Now back in with Louisiana breads. He was a winner at this level at fairgrounds in February, and he loves Louisiana. Then March the 16th, he runs into three next out winners. He chases lone speed. He never has a shot. And then May 10th, he's got trouble. I like the number two, Reckless Ransom, quite a bit. The five, 
war count just makes a ton of sense for the connections here. Very well spotted. The seven will also be in the mix for me. Adrenaline, one of the quickest in there. Pickens is also very fast. Those two could be flashing speed. The one, Cryptozonic, did have some legit trouble. And the three, Cipriano, fits very nicely, but he's going to leave the Robertino Diodoro barn. It's really tough to claim off of Diodoro. So, two, five, seven, four, one, three, if you're looking to play exotics. That's how I put them in order, but I love the two, Reckless Ransom, as the, the key to all of them. In the seventh race at Louisiana, finishing things up on Sunday, seven and a half furlongs on the turf. We've got 12, five, non-winners of three. The number two, Calling in the night, I have heard you calling in the night. Hopped at the start, just a brutal beginning. Was last, was 10 off, was in a race that was very slowly run early, so he never had a shot. Now he's going to go second start off the break. He is capable of a lot better on the turf. He's got some upside with just those three turf starts. The number two, calling in the night. We'll use the three muffin nuts all over. Was a runner-up behind Oh My Aching Arch who came back and was beaten by just a neck against First Level Allowance Company. So that runner franks the form of Muffin Nuts. The 8 will also be in the conversation. Charlie Michael, he's really quick, but he really shortened stride late to lose second in his last race and just seems pretty one-dimensional. The one just a swinging. His only turf race was a win. He comes into a, a new barn and they immediately go right back to the turf. Then you've got the six, Pleasant Vision. Sort of a wild card here. Was a, a nice winner on May the 15th. I just don't know what to really do with him first start on the turf. Two, three, eight, one, and six are horses that I may be using in some exotics, but the two and the three on the top tier with the two calling in the night the top selection there. No Chad Cooper this week, but we're going to make the transition on over and start talking some wrestling. Hope Koopa Loop is feeling better. He's a little under the weather, but uh, I'm still going to roll that intro even without Chad, and I'll jump into everything going on in the world of wrestling. We're going to, we've got a lot to talk about. We're going to recap SmackDown and Raw. We're going to preview Hell in a Cell. We're going to talk NXT recap. We're going to preview In Your House, and we're going to recap Double or Nothing and, uh, and Dynamite. So, whew, a lot coming up on this week in wrestling. Here it is, folks. Fight of the night. And trying to claim that belt once and for all. It's this week's wrestling recap. All right, calm down. And here he is, your hometown hero, your reigning champ, the one and only Chad Cooper. So let's head back to last week. Uh, we go to May the 27th for SmackDown. We got Ronda Rousey versus Raquel Rodriguez ending in a no contest. And uh, and then they end up teaming up to beat Shayna and Natty in a tag team match. Los Lotharios defeated Jinder Mahal. And the Dancing Shanky. We had Gunther and Ludwig Kaiser beating the IC champ Ricochet and Drew Gulak. So it looks like that's a feud that they're headed to now. Drew McIntyre and the New Day. It was the Drew Day uh, against... The Brawling Brutes, Seamus, Ridge, and uh, Butch, and the Drew Day got the win there. So that was Friday SmackDown. We started things out with uh, the Usos welcoming everyone there. They talked about how this uh, this was their 12-year anniversary a little bit. So they opened things up. They're interrupted by Nakamura and Riddle. And so Nakamura and Riddle are actually 
a uh, a tag team now, and they're uh, invested in making life difficult on the Usos moving forward. So that's uh that's going to be something we're going to keep an eye on as this is a feud that's now starting to build between both shows with Randy Orton out for a little while, and it looks like Riddle may be the next challenger for Roman Reigns in, I think, a month or so. Won't be at this uh, this upcoming Hell in a Cell pay-per-view. So we then transitioned into Ronda, Raquel. What we saw backstage was Shotzi Blackheart trying to kind of rile up all the women and talk about how they're not getting opportunities, Raquel's getting opportunities instead of them. So Shotzi was trying to uh, fire everybody up, and what ended up happening is Aaliyah locked her in the uh, locked her in in like a closet, so she wasn't able to come out. So we'll probably get a little match with Aaliyah and Shotzi coming out of this, and I think inevitably Raquel will get a bigger match against Ronda. But they're sort of having this fun feud out of respect right now between Ronda and Raquel. Raquel, I like what they've been doing with Raquel. I really do. She's looked strong. They haven't had her quick roll up or get beat poorly or do anything too goofy she's looked strong and she's you know smiling a lot and sometimes people don't like the big the big uh, giants that come out and smile but she's good looking she's a badass I like Raquel we checked in backstage with uh, the New Day they set up everything that was going to happen later on we got a recap of Happy Corbin Madcap Moss from a few weeks back and then Lot. Los Lotharios versus Jinder and Shanky. Los Lotharios get the win. They, of course, had the kiss cam out there. And then after the match, Jinder starts yelling at Shanky. And but Shanky starts dancing. So uh yeah, this was this was and you know the crowd, it, it's goofy, but the crowd seems to be pretty into Shanky, and he sort of seems like he likes the dancing thing. So I want to see Shanky dance a little bit more here. We had Max Dupree, and Max is going to go find his first client. That's the former L.A. Knight, the former Eli Drake. KO comes out for the KO show. This was hilarious. He he brings out Sami Zayn, their best buds, and Sami says, you know what? How does everybody not know that it's Ezekiel is Elias? And Kevin was like, thank you, buddy. I can't believe it. It was so funny to see this, and... Sammy's talking about how he's part of the bloodline. And at the beginning, they're complimenting each other. Sammy, uh, you know, Kevin asks, hey, let's go, let's go kind of rile things up. You know, let's let's go expose the liars in the in the locker room. But Sammy says, No, you know, I got a lot on my plate. You know, I'm I'm doing this whole thing with the bloodline. You know, come on, Oos. He calls KO Oos. And that these guys are great right now. They're both so funny and entertaining. And then Sammy gets mad, and he says Elias and Ezekiel are two different people, and everyone can see that except KO, and he he says he's a liar, and they start yelling at each other. This was really funny, really funny stuff. We then got Ricochet and Drew Gulak versus Gunther and Ludwig Kaiser. Gunther and Kaiser get an easy win. It was Gulak that got the pin, and uh, post-match, there was a beat down there. We'll see. uh, It looks... I'd imagine we're going to Gunther versus Ricochet for the IC title at some point. Then we go backstage and Sammy's talking with the Usos and you know, he asks him, you know, what do you guys honestly think of me? You know, like what what am I to you? And he's just doing all the talking and the Usos are sort of making faces and 
They call they said that he can be an honorary Oos, an honorary member of the bloodline, and he is Sammy is just geeking. He's laughing, he's grinning. It's it's really funny. So we then get the Brawling Brutes versus Kofi, Xavier, and Drew was the surprise guest, which is I think what we uh we thought it might have been last week when they announced that there was gonna be a surprise. So Drew McIntyre comes out and he helps the New Day get the win there and they celebrate and they dance afterwards. Let's move along to Monday Night Raw from May the 30th. We had uh, Bianca Belair getting the win over Asuka. Uh, Ezekiel, Rey Mysterio, and Dominic beat KO and Alpha Academy. Alexa Bliss beat Drew Drop. Tamina beat Dana Brooke. And then Tazawa beat Tamina. Mustafa got a win via DQ over Ciampa. And then Theory beat Mustafa in a U.S. title match, but We'll find out more about that. We then got a championship contenders match. Nakamura and Riddle beat the Usos. So now they will be number one contenders. And Liv Morgan beat Rhea Ripley. Those were the matches on the card. Becky Lynch opened Monday Night Raw. She came out and uh, she kicked off the show. Then Asuka interrupts her. And then Bianca interrupts her. So we got a back and forth between the three of them. Which led to Bianca versus Asuka there. And as expected with, you know, all three of them out there, towards the end, you've got uh, Becky and Asuka, and then Asuka catches her with the knee, and then a back fist, and then Belair flights, uh, fights out, and the Asuka lock, but then uh, a grand slam there, and uh, B- uh, Bianca goes for the moonsault, but then she catches Asuka in a roll-up. So they not they won't make anyone look too strong or too weak going into it, but I just don't like when they have matches like this before a triple threat. I don't want to see Bianca and Asuka go one-on-one before they have a match at Hell in a Cell coming up this weekend. So it's not as if it looks makes Asuka look bad. I, just, I don't want to see Bianca lose, and I don't want to see any of the contenders lose heading into their big matches. Have You don't need to do this. And then Becky comes in, and she... You know, like the Jackal goes after both Asuka and Belair. We then got Rey, Dominic Mysterio, and Ezekiel versus KO and Alpha Academy, which was a lot of fun. Is uh, Rey set up KO for the 619, but Rey and Dominic hit a double 619 on Gable, and then Ezekiel with the, uh, the twisting brain buster to get the pin. We then get Cody Rhodes making his entrance. He comes out with the mic and... He talked about how he was always a fan of Seth. He saw the potential for great things. He said that his dad, Dusty, was always a big fan of Seth, which is true, back in NXT. And Cody said he was nervous to face Seth at WrestleMania. Knew he couldn't come back to WWE with the loss. Talked about uh, Hell in a Cell and leading to their match. It's going to be the biggest challenge of Cody's career. But Seth cuts him off, and Seth is in the crowd. He says, I don't like Cody. I never wanted him here. So I tried to accept this new version, but the pandering gets worse and worse every week, and I can't stand it any longer. This was one of the best promos that Seth Rollins has ever cut in his career. I wanted this to be the babyface version of Seth Rollins. This is the guy I've been wanting, but like just changing the words a little bit as a babyface, right? And we've had to have the whiny, heely Seth for so long. He actually said some things that got the crowd excited. He said, Cody, you left WWE six years ago because you weren't good enough. And then you and your little friends tried to tear down everything that Seth was trying to build. And when that didn't work out, Cody came crawling back. 
said Cody doesn't get to take a sledgehammer to the throne and then try to take that throne away from him. And he says that hell in a cell, he's going to end Rhodes. And then we can all wake up from this American nightmare. Great stuff. Cody tried to get Seth to come in to the ring and, and brawl right then. But of course, Seth pulled the heel move. And, you know, he kind of teased it. Says, I'll see you Sunday. Then Cody jumps the barricade. They start brawling. We have a a nice fight. Officials and refs come down and break it up. And then they go at it again. Rhodes gets loose and goes after Cody once again. Crowd is loving it. Really fun brawl that should lead to a cool tr- uh, end of the trilogy for Cody Rhodes and Seth Rollins coming up this weekend at Hell in a Cell. We then get a clip of Alexa Bliss winning the Money in the Bank in 2018, cashing it in. And uh, Alexa Bliss versus Dewdrop, which is won by Alexa Bliss with Twisted Bliss. Then uh, following that, The Miz comes out, ready to host a Miz TV segment. And Miz talks about Miz and Maurice, but he's cut off by the Street Profits who come out to sort of just promote Hell in a Cell. They remind everybody what's going on. And Ford talks about Bianca Belair. And all it was was just uh, come out there, promote it. They did. They set Miz up and then cut him off. It doesn't matter what you think. They're out in the ring, and then all of a sudden, all the 24-7 antics. Here comes Dana Brooke running, followed by Tazawa. T-Bar shows up, and then Montez Ford gets involved. R-Truth and Apollo Crews are in the ring. Tamina's in there now. Then Dawkins throws Crews out, and Tamina hits a Samoan drop, and she wins the 24-7 title. Then she picks up Tazawa, kisses him, and he rolls her up and pins her to win the title, and he runs off. We get a quick look at what happened last week with Veer. Now we're back, and it's Ciampa versus Ali. Ciampa's in the ring. Ali gets an entrance. Theory is uh, on commentary. And I don't love what we're seeing with Ciampa. It just doesn't seem like much from him. Like, he's not losing matches or anything, but he doesn't really have much of a story. He's just sort of like a guy we didn't even get an entrance from him. But he still looks badass in there. And Ali at least has a story now, so this is great. Ali ends up getting a win because Theory interferes. So Ali wins via DQ. So that means Ali gets a U.S. title match. And then Theory says, great, we're going to have that match right now. So he he did it on purpose. He beat up Ali knowing that he would weaken him for their match immediately. They ring the bell. Takes a few moments. Ali f- fights back a little bit. Super kick. Swing DDT. Climbs to the top rope. But Theory nails him and hits the A-Town down for the pin. But after the match, Adam Pierce comes out and says that Mr. McMahon wants there to be a championship match for these two at Hell in a Cell. So we're going to have the U.S. title at Hell in a Cell with... Riddle, or excuse me, U.S. title at Hell in a Cell with Theory versus Ali. We then got set up for the championship contenders match, the Usos versus Nakamura and Riddle, and Nakamura and Riddle beat the Usos as the Usos were choking Riddle on the second rope, and then Jimmy hit Riddle with the scooter, ref sees it, so the Usos get DQ'd, Nakamura and Riddle win, which means they are going to get a tag team championship match. Following this, we got Liv Morgan entering. She gets a, a match against Rhea. They showed Titus O'Neil at the Indy 500 over the weekend. And Kevin Patrick interviews Ali, cut a little babyface promo, and said that he's going to be the new U.S. champ in his hometown, Chicago, this weekend. Then Theory jumps him from behind and takes a, 
a selfie. I wouldn't be shocked if Ali got this thing in Chicago. Rhea, uh, Rhea Ripley enters. She's got a match against Liv. We had a little thank you for Memorial Day. Thank you to the men and women in service in the U.S. And we got Liv Morgan versus Rhea Ripley. And we actually got Liv. They, you know, they're back and forth. Priest is, you know, trying to help and get involved. And Ripley goes for the riptide, but Liv, exca- Liv gets out of it, hits the backstabber, and rolls up Rhea for the win. After the match, Damian Priest and AJ are brawling, and Liv is, you know, in like trying to get involved. She's trying to help. Here comes Finn Balor, and so Balor and AJ look at Ripley, and then uh, Liv takes her out. So we get AJ with the phenomenal forearm, Finn with the coup de gras, and we get the three of them standing tall: AJ, Finn, and Liv Morgan. Too sweet. So to close things out, we actually got. The contract signing between Omos, MVP, and Lashley. And I just, I didn't really love this. You know, they're trying to make this match seem like it's a big deal, but it's a 2-1-1 handicap match. Lashley has sort of been struggling on his own with cutting promos. And I just, it's just not connecting. I think there's something with Omos that just has not hit. They've tried with the MVP stuff. It just does not feel like it's working all that well for me. So for Hell in a Cell this weekend, it's on Sunday. We've got... Ezekiel versus Kevin Owens in a singles match That should be a blast We gotta have something with Elias in some way here They've been waiting I think it's now's the time for the match We got Bobby Lashley versus Omos and MVP We got Theory versus Mustafa Ali For the US title Good to see Ali getting some run Bianca versus Asuka versus Becky Triple threat for the Raw Women's Championship Finn, AJ, and Liv Versus Edge, Damian Priest, and Rhea Six person tag and then Cody versus Seth, freaking Rollins, hell in a cell. That's coming up on Sunday, but Saturday we're actually going to have an NXT pay-per-view. We'll uh, talk about what's on the pay-per-view there, but first let's uh, let's do a quick recap of what happened on NXT on May the 31st earlier this week. We had the tag team champs pretty deadly beat Roderick Strong and Damon Kemp. Kemp looked pretty good in here. There's a little something to him. Cora Jade defeated Electra Lopez. So, she's starting to build up some momentum. I love what they're doing with Wesley. I, don't be shocked if Wesley is a singles champ coming soon. He's got the in-ring ability. He's a babyface, and now he's starting to show some charisma. This is sort of one of the issues that we're not, we, we haven't ever really seen in the WWE version of Ricochet. He can go in the ring, but can he make us care about the matches a little bit? I'm a little invested in what, what I've been seeing with Wesley. He beat Zion Quinn. It was a roll-up. Uh, Sangha, the big man, is sort of like in um, in his corner and helps him out. I want to see more and more of Wesley. Solo Sokoa got the win over Duke Hudson. He is maybe the most over person on the show right now. Grayson Waller beat Josh Briggs. Ivy Nile with the win over Kiana James. And we had a very good main event with North American champ Cameron Grimes beating Nathan Frazier, who I'm really starting to like. This dude can go in the ring. So this week on Saturday, we've got six matches listed for NXT in your house. I got to be honest, on paper, it just doesn't feel like it's it's a huge event. I think it'll deliver fine. The matches will still be good, but the builds don't feel all that incredible. And we don't have Solo Sokoa on the show. He's next in line for the North American Championship, but he's 
one of the bigger fan favorites right now. You don't have Cora Jade, even Waller, who feels like one of the, you know, kind of like a top act. He's not in the mix here anywhere. Cameron Grimes, Carmelo Hayes should be the show stealer. That's the match I'm really, really looking forward to. There are three matches on the card that I think are going to be great. I'm not sure what we're going to get from either of Toxic Attraction's matches. Katana Chance and Caden Carter, at least they're a legit tag team. So I'm glad they're getting the opportunity, but I I don't know if this is going to be a steal-the-show type match. Mandy Rose, Wendy Chu, I think we are going to be surprised with Wendy Chu. She can go in the ring, and Mandy's been a little bit better than I think people want to give her credit for. I don't know if Wendy's going to win this thing, but we're going to see Wendy show that she's got some in-ring ability. Tony D, Tony D'Angelo, Channing Stacks, Lorenzo, and Troy Two Dimes Donovan versus Legado Del Fantasma, Santos, Escobar, Cruz, Del Toro, and Joaquin Wilde. That's the six-man tag. Losing team joins the winning team stable. And then we've got uh, Pretty Deadly versus the Creed Brothers. That match is going to be awesome. If Julius and Brutus lose, they must leave Diamond Mine. Braun Breaker, Joe Gacy. If Breaker is disqualified, he loses the title. I'm not really looking forward to that one. I hate stipulations like that. Breaker just beat Gacy. We should have been done with this a while ago. Six matches carded. Right now for NXT In Your House this weekend. So we have NXT In Your House and Hell in a Cell coming up this weekend in WWE. And in AEW, we are coming off a big show. Coming off AEW Double or Nothing. And we run through what was a 13-match card. Hookhausen beat Tony Nese and Mark Sterling to kick things off on the pre-show. This is fun. I just, I'm worried that they, I hope they didn't squander Hook. Because six months ago, this dude was really hot. He had this like cult following. The fans are still behind him, but there was all this intrigue about him nationally, just from people who didn't know. Like, who's Hook? What's going on? Now, you don't really see him being treated like a big star. They're having fun, and I don't mind the the pairing, but I I thought Hook was someone who was was going to get a rocket. Maybe he's not ready to go. Right, maybe they need to build up time for him. He's super young. I'd like to see a little bit more from him. We got Wardlow beating MJF in a legitimate squash. I mean, he just crushed him here. MJF was pulling pulling some of the, you know, the heel stuff early, but he crushed him. And all week long, there was the the rumor about MJF. Is this real? Is it a work? MJF didn't show up for an autograph signing at one of the fan fests. MJF was reportedly on a plane flight out of Vegas and was not going to show up at the event. MJF has been mad about his pay compared to others. He's been mad about how all these ex-WWE guys come in. They get paid more than him. He draws more. He has, when he's on, there's better ratings. Like Everything he says is true, to be fair. And he cuts like a pipe bomb type promo that we'll talk a little bit about on AEW Dynamite. The Hardys get the win over the Young Bucks. This thing went about 20 minutes. And the match was fine. It was solid. They've had better matches. It, and the build wasn't that great. It was kind of rushed. That was my problem with a lot of this show. I thought the back half of the show really picked up. But a lot of it felt rushed. It didn't feel like these stories were put together with like a couple of weeks or maybe a month to build. And we're getting the pro- that same problem, I think, with the Forbidden Door show. That's one of my major gripes with AEW. They have so much happening 
that sometimes they can't really tell great stories all the way through because it's just match, match, segment, segment, throw everything. We got to get everyone on the show. We got to get this in and this in, this in, that some things suffer from their build. Now, most of the time, once the matches start, it's fine. The matches are great. But I myself, I always like matches better, and I'm a little bit more invested when they have a better build to them. Even if they are the same quality of in-ring work, give me the match that's got a little bit better build. Jade Cargill beat Anna Jay, and then we had a couple debuts. We had Athena, the former Ember Moon. Ember starts the fire. Ember sparks the flame. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, I could keep going there. Ember Moon, the former Ember Moon, she's here. Stokely Hathaway, the former Malcolm Bivens, he's also here. He is paired now with Jade, and it looks like we're going to get a Jade-Athena match slash feud moving forward. Another match that was okay. It's just the House of Black, Buddy Matthews, Malachi Black, and Brody King versus the Death Triangle, Pac, Penta, and Phoenix. When Malachi Black, Tommy End, left WWE after having a good run in NXT and people said he was getting misused, this guy could be like the Undertaker type, I just don't know if this is what I thought for him. When he came in and looked really impressive against Cody like in the middle of the card in six-man tags that are good, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm sure he's happy with the angle and the character that he's created, but is he being used to his maximum potential. Adam Cole gets the win in the Owen Hart men's tournament final, and Dr. Britt Baker gets the win in the women's. So uh, Adam Cole beat Samoa Joe, and Britt Baker beat Ruby Soho. But it does look like that feud may be continuing a little bit because on uh, on Dynamite, they did con- seem like they were continuing there, and Ruby got the win in a tag match. American top team in a six-person tag Ethan Page, Scorpio Sky, and Paige Van Zant with uh, beat Frankie Kazarian, Sammy Guevara, and Ty Conti. And since neither, or since American Top Team won, Kazarian nor Guevara are allowed to challenge for the TNT title as long as Sky is champ. I haven't really been very invested in a lot of this. Kyle O'Reilly, Darby Allen. This thing went about 10 minutes. It was a really good singles match. Things start to pick up a bit here, but this was like a match that didn't need to be on the card and a really long card already. You just didn't have Darby on the show, so they, they sort of felt the need to put him on here. Thunder Rosa, Serena Deeb was a very good women's match. These two worked really, really well. Thunder Rosa got the win. The Anarchy in the Arena match was a lot of fun. The Jericho Appreciation Society got the win because Eddie Kingston basically went nuts and his team was turning against him. So... Jericho Appreciation Society gets the win, but this is not over. Looks like we're going to be getting a blood and guts match with the combinations of these teams. We had the three-way tag match for the world title, for the AEW Tag Team World Titles, and it was Jurassic Express versus Keith Lee and Swerve versus Team Taz, Hobbs, and Starks. Jurassic Express got the win in over 17 minutes. I thought Swerve and Lee might have got the win here, but no, they're going to continue on with Jurassic Express. And then Punk beat Hangman Adam Page by pin in the main event. That's the right call. Punk needed to win. It wasn't his best outing, though. Punk's last two or three matches, he's been a little sloppy. So the crowd loved it. The story's fine. Punk should be the champ. But he didn't look. He wasn't as sharp in the ring as he's been a few weeks ago. So that was AEW double or nothing. That was a 
a very good show. Towards the back end of the show, it was better. I don't, it was too long. I, why can't we say things like it was good without it having to be like, oh my gosh, this was the greatest thing ever. When you compare that to prior AEW pay-per-views, though, it was probably one of the weaker ones. It was still a good wrestling show towards the end, but it was way too long, and they have to build better to their pay-per-views. So some critique about the show. Now, Dynamite was fantastic. Dynamite was really good. They were out in uh, Los Angeles. They were at the Forum for the first time. I didn't get the chance to uh, to head on out. I would have liked to be there. They kicked off the show with Punk and FTR beating the Gun Club, a funny Max Caster rap when he came out. And I actually think that they're kind of a funny heel group, Caster and the and the Gun Club. And um, so Punk, like, this was again though, Punk and FTR, like he was sloppy. There were some botched spots here. And Punk even mentions it. He cuts the promo after. The crowd was nuts this whole show because AEW has not been to California before. So this was a crowd that was really excited to see AEW. And they have a lot of some, you know, local California wrestlers in AEW that were local indie stars that have now made it big. So crowds were really excited to see them and to see them succeeding. Miro is back. He beats Johnny Elite. But, like, where do you go with Johnny Elite? Why do you bring people in like Johnny Elite? I know they're they're fun to have, but if they're only gonna lose Johnny Elite and like Jay Lethal, play like some guys and gals like that who might be able to be major players elsewhere, it doesn't really make sense to me. Make a big deal or sort of talk about a surprise and then they're just getting beat over and over. We had Hikuleo, Bobby Fish, Kyle O'Reilly, and the Young Bucks beat Luchasaurus, Christian Cage, Darby, and Matt Hardy. Wardlow beat J.D. Drake, Ruby Soho and Tony Storm beat Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter, and Moxley beat Daniel Garcia, but there were some other things that happened on the show. After that match, to kick things off with Punk and FTR winning, Punk cuts a promo, he says he's got to work on a few things, he said he's never done drugs, but he imagined this is what it feels like, and then um, it was kind of funny because Dax Harwood got the mic and he said, well those things Punk hasn't done, I have, and this is what it feels like, and then he talked about his family. And he says the only things that mean there are the only things that mean more to him than wrestling. Cool. I like FTR right now. They're they're fun baby faces. And Punk is over. He just sloppy the last week and a half. I don't know if it's sloppy or just, you know, missed a few spots, but not not quite as sharp. Now MJF comes out. The MJF pipe bomb. Says he's in a lot of pain, but all the people want is to hear him talk. Said if something bad happened tonight. It'd be a shame because there's a lot of important people in the audience. He said Tony Khan has been wanting to sit down with him for a while, but it's too late. He said everyone that was hand- was handed a ticket right at the start of AEW, but Punk or but MJF had to write his own. He created moment after moment, but he gets no respect, and nobody's on his level. And there's nothing he cannot do. He's expected to hit grand slams every night, and he does that shit on a weekly basis. He has to be perfect. He's held under a microscope. He's the only guy capable of carrying the company. It's interesting. He hears clapping because the crowd's starting to kind of cheer for him. Said they weren't there this weekend when they called him unprofessional. MJF tells the guys in the back they can have his spot. He doesn't want to be here anymore. He calls the fans uneducated marks who just sit there and tweet their opinions. He tells the fans, you don't know shit. And your opinions suck. And they change at the drop of a dime. Says people claim they knew he was, they always knew he was a good wrestler. That wasn't what they originally said. Doesn't pretend to watch New Japan or chase star ratings. He's the best because he makes you feel. And unlike the rest, he doesn't need to do bullshit to get fans there. He says it isn't just the fans who take him for granted. 
Says it's the big man in the back as well. He asked, who's the second biggest minute-to-minute draw in the company? It's him. And they should ask Stat Boy Tony. But don't ask to pay the man who's been busting his ass for him. He should hoard all that money and give it to all the ex-WWE guys who can't lace his boots. MJF asks Tony if he'd treat him better if he was an ex-WWE guy. Says the only position that Tony should have is behind the guardrail. Can't wait till 2024. Fire me, Tony. He says, F-U Mark. He calls him an effing Mark. Then he gets the microphone cut and the everything cuts off. So they try to act like this was you know, a pipe bomb, something real. It's got to be a work because this G- January 2024, this is a long time away. And I thought, I thought MJF was incredible here. He was great. Now, my only concern with this is what comes next? Is Tony Khan going to be like the evil boss on screen? If so, Tony's really not like Vince as a performer. And then we're going to be cheering MJF and booing Tony, and now Tony's going to be like the bad guy of AEW, but that's not what the fans want. Fans like that AEW's kind of like a babyface company, and Tony Khan's sort of treated like a babyface as the owner because it's the alternative to WWE, and he can bring all these other guys and gals in and pay them a lot of money and give them sort of creative control and let them create the characters they want and... So I I thought it was great. I just don't know what the follow-up is going to be. Who's Who are we going to be cheering and, and who are we going to be booing? We'll find out. Miro is back. He says he's going to redeem everyone and the good deeds will bring him back to the kingdom of heaven. His neck is fixed, but it's his heart that is broken. He doesn't wish to come home to his God. He wants to take his and he just crushes Johnny Elite here. And uh, Johnny Elite... With some off, a little bit of offense here and there, but he tries a pin. Miro kicks out immediately, and uh, we get the game over submission. Out in the parking lot, that's the Jericho Appreciation Society. They talk about how uh, they dominated, and Danny Magic said that they're going to know. People will know they're the princes of pain because nobody does it better, and the fans deserve that uh, to see the winners of the match on Sunday, and that's them. So they come out, they're cutting a promo, they're interrupted by Eddie Kingston, and William Regal says they want to fight in blood and guts. Kingston is just rambling. He says he hasn't seen Moxley in a few weeks, even though he just saw him on Sunday. He says Danielson won't talk to him. Calls Ortiz Monkey, which is like a nickname for him. But they head to the ring. Kingston gets attacked by the Jericho Appreciation Society. They beat him down. Then here comes Ortiz, and... He's got a weapon. That pisses off Jericho. He actually cuts a piece of Jericho's hair off. So they're also going to have a a hair versus hair match. Jericho said he's going to shave him, beat him, burn him, because I'm a wizard. It's his new thing. He's a wizard. Doctor Strange, Jericho. Red Dragon, Hikaleo, and the Young Bucks versus Jurassic Express, Darby, and Matt Hardy. A fun eight-man tag. The Undisputed Elite and Hikaleo get the win. They're at home. So, we had Matt getting the Meltzer driver for the win. And they set up a match uh, coming up for this weekend on Friday. A a fun tag match. Post-match, Christian and Jungle Boy. There was a a little something more between them. Swerve and Keith Lee are backstage and hanging out with some famous friends. Talking about what's next for them. We then got Tony Schiavone welcoming Athena. And she says uh, she's all elite. Top top competition is here. 
She said, all streaks are made to be broken. She's the one to break Jade's. She said, she's the fallen goddess. Jade comes out and tells Tony, Tony to cut the shit. She says, she is that bitch. And she introduces Stokely Hathaway, who only briefly talks. I want to hear more from Stokely. Kira Hogan then comes out and gets in Athena's face. Anna Jay and Chris Statlander then come out. It got a little bit too much. Trying to do a little too much. I would have liked to see a little more of just Stokely here. So Wardlow is out. Quick squash. Tons of power bombs. But wow, did Wardlow not feel like a, as big of a star as he had in the weeks leading up when they have the security leading him out and no music and MJF, he was involved with MJF. He just feels like MJF is in a huge sort of real life sort of serious thing and Wardlow is just, you know, here in the middle of the card. He didn't seem as over. The crowd wasn't quite as invested and they didn't capitalize on him here. He's involved with Mark Sterling. So they didn't, I didn't like what they did with, with him this week. One of my few gripes of this show, I thought this was a great show. The crowd was hot from start to finish. Tony Storm and Ruby beat Jamie and Britt Baker. And Ruby gets the win and she pins Britt with the destination unknown. After the match, they celebrate. But Jamie Hayter uses the title to uh, attack Ruby and Tony. So they're both laying as uh, Britt and Jamie leave. Main event was a very good match. Daniel Garcia, John Moxley, we've seen this a couple times. Garcia was strikes, locked in a pretty nice-looking sharpshooter where he sat back. But, of course, you get all sorts of shenanigans outside of the ring with, with these groups. Jericho heads down, trying for a distraction. Eddie Kingston comes out. Then Moxley hits the paradigm shift and the bulldog choke. And uh, Moxley says he's up for blood and guts. Lots going on right now in the uh, the world of wrestling. We had a couple pay-per-views to preview. We had one to recap. And uh, like always, our buddy Chad Koopaloop, he'll be with us again next week. But we are going to go from some wrestling right now to old wrestling. We're going to head to the old wrestling rewatch. We head back to 1995 WCW Starcade. The World Cup of Wrestling, New Japan versus WCW, it's very, very similar to what we're seeing right now with the build and the setup to the Forbidden Door with AEW. This was Andrew Champagne's call, so we're going to deep dive, recap, and review Starcade 95 WCW with the World Cup of Wrestling. Oh, yeah. Oh, wrestling rewatch with Andrew Champagne and Darren Zocali. <laughs> The Old Wrestling Rewatch is back this week. Just Andrew Champagne and myself, DZ, out for the week. But he'll be uh, back with us again shortly. And Andrew, this was your selection. And it was a, a really good show and a fun idea and a cool concept. That is something that you know a lot of people always, a lot of fans always sort of do in their mind. Or make little lists on paper. What if we had this company versus this company dream matches here? And unfortunately, Vince McMahon and WWE isn't really the type of place that would do something like that. But Eric Bischoff and WCW, they had a different they, – they wanted to try to do things a little bit different. So they were involved a lot with different promotions internationally, stuff with AAA from Mexico, stuff with New Japan Wrestling. And what we get for Starcade here in 1995 is – an interesting idea because we basically get like a World Cup of Wrestling um, where you have 
One wrestler from WCW Face a wrestler from New Japan But they will also have um, A couple Main major matches Based solely around The WCW wrestlers For the title which we see towards the end So they try to give you a little bit of Both here um, and I think Just sort of overall mainly Because Andrew one of the negatives In something like this especially in 95 Is a lot of your fan base Probably doesn't know most of these people from New Japan And somewhere A very young Tony Khan Had to beg his father To send (laughs) some of his billions of dollars To buy Starcade 95 He looked up at the television And went Hmm Yeah the reason I picked this show Is because AEW is doing the exact same thing In 2022 with Forbidden Door I thought it was worth Going back in time And seeing what WCW did in the mid-90s, trying to do some of the same stuff. It's not a dead ringer, but it is the same sort of thing with the same partner promotion. Of course, we're referring to New Japan Pro Wrestling. And look, anybody that knows even a little bit about New Japan Pro Wrestling knows that NJPW's workers can really go. And that's been the case for a very, very long time. They sent over some of their heaviest hitters, to wrestle in these matches. We get Jushin Liger, who is an all-timer, one of my absolute favorites. We get Masa Chono. We get Hiroyoshi Tenzan. We get Kensuke Sasaki. Sasaki is in the Observer Hall of Fame. And if you're in the Observer Hall of Fame, those they don't do pity acceptances. You got to earn your way into those things. There were a lot of really cool matches on paper, some of which really delivered. If you can stomach watching the first match, you can argue there are three four-star matches on this show. There are some qualms with the execution, and we'll get into that. But on the whole, there's a lot of fun stuff on this show. Yeah, lots of positives. Andrew, we got the WCW versus New Japan. It's the best of seven battle for the World Cup of Pro Wrestling. And then we get some of the all-time greats. In a couple major matches towards the end Where we have a triple threat match In a time period where there really weren't a whole lot of triple threat matches You would see it in ECW a little bit But this wasn't something that was Like something other than a one-on-one or a tag team match Was a little bit unique So this was a bit strange for the time And then you end up with the winner of that match Going right into facing Macho Man who is the champ at the time To make things a little bit even Macho Man also wrestled multiple matches It was kind of funny because the only one who Who had not wrestled or wasn't Slated to wrestle someone from New Japan Was Ric Flair who was going to be In the uh, in the number one Contenders match for the world title So there were some things that Maybe were a little bit Convoluted but honestly it, For the most part I thought it worked out all pretty well um, I, There wasn't anything That was like Maybe they could have done things a little bit better here or there I think there are a few matches we're going to talk about That I I think could have maybe had a little more time A little less time for a few But overall, I didn't really have a problem with most of this show My main problem with this show Had nothing to do with the World Cup format They got a little carried away at the end of the show They did the triangle match Featuring two guys that had already wrestled the match Yeah, that was Flair Yep And the winner of that got Randy Savage Who also wrestled earlier in the night Just do a freaking four-way 
you don't need to overmanage it or overcomplicate anything. You can get where you're going just doing a simple four-way match that maybe spotlights everybody involved and puts less of a reliance on two guys in Sting and Luger who had tremendous chemistry as tag team partners, as stablemates, whatever. As opponents, it was bad. Yeah, it just did, it didn't really click there when they would uh, when they would link up. So we'll get to that match and we'll get to everything on this card. And one more thing to mention before we we dive in. It's a little weird because, you know, you get some real cringy sort of comments from Bobby the Brain because you have all these new Japan, these people in from New Japan. And so there are some things that are just like, oh, like a little cringy. But it's funny because he's taking the heel approach. So he's actually like rooting for New Japan, but he doesn't even know how to like actually play that role. It, it, there is a little bit of, of strange there with the uh, with the announce team and with just this may have been one of those shows they didn't have yet. But like today would have been so huge at a show like this. Someone who knew yep. li- like a little more about the New Japan roster because there were some of those matches where it's like, Bobby and Dusty are making fun of Tony for calling the moves. Yeah, there's one where he's like literally talking about like a Saido suplex and whatever and X amount of kicks, whatever. And Heenan's going, he kicked him in the mouth. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, where did you come up with that name? Yeah. Dusty's like, what you, where did you find that? You know, it's just. <laughs> there, there's some good lines, there's some bad lines, whatever. In that vein, the existence of Sonny Ono on this show. And some of the comments he makes, this was about the time where Japanese business interests were really heavily buying into American markets. And Sonny Ono, who was a manager, was also one of Eric Bischoff's friends, winds up coming into the company. And look, heel foreign manager is an old shtick. It's fine. It's whatever. There are some moments on this show where you realize a couple of years later, Sonny Ono sues WCW for any number of things and winds up winning the lawsuit. Um, This is probably exhibit a in that lawsuit with some of the things that uh, were said about Japanese people, some of the undertones, it was awkward. And there were times where it was borderline xenophobic. We'll get into that. And that's one of the things that I'm honestly really looking forward to about Forbidden Door is the respect that's going to be shown towards the Japanese product because, hey, a lot of AEW's biggest stars, they didn't get their bones in WWE. They got their bones in New Japan learning from a lot of these guys. Yeah, they do a very good job, whether or not you're a huge AEW fan. um, They do a very good job of paying great respect to just the history of wrestling overall. Um, even even because they they don't have a rich history, so for them they will you know they will sort of take the the mantle of really praising a lot of the all time greats from WCW or from the South, even though they weren't really that that's not their company, but they'll do the same thing with New Japan and overall they uh, they do try to really show a lot of respect for wrestling and the history of wrestling and. Starcade 95 the World Cup of Wrestling was in that history there was one more thing before we get into the uh, the match by match recap so we had two dark matches to start DDP against Dave Sullivan and then the American Males Marcus Alexander and Scotty Riggs beating the Blue Bloods now there was something 
sort of goofy that happened at the end of the show with the one man gang and Suzaki. Oh, because, this is weird. Yeah, because so Suzaki was actually the United States champion on the card. And at the end of the show, they had a match against the one man gang where they did something like really funky. He never even won the match yet. Afterwards, they acted like he won the match, and they just made it a ch- made it a title change. Even though the people there sort of saw Sasaki win, there was just something really funky about it, and it's been talked about before. So, this was something that was just at least worth mentioning because it was it was very bizarre in like the title lineage and history of the U.S. title. Yeah, this reeked of we need to get the title off of this guy, but we promised he wasn't going to look overly weak. And he, spoiler alert, by the way, is going to basically lose the game seven of the entire series and then lose the title after the show. Let's do something to make sure the people there understand this guy is somewhat of a big deal. So that's why they did that match the way they did. But all anybody was told afterwards was, hey, look, the one man gang is the U.S. champion. Bizarre. Wrestling has some funny stories like this and. When you dive in Sometimes you'll just scratch your head But uh, at least worth mentioning The one man gang Who uh, left the night in 95 As your US champ For uh, a short period of time Let's get into Starcade 1995 We are in December 27th now At the end of 95 And what's very interesting too Andrew There's no Hulk Hogan on the show And Hulk Hogan has come over already And made a big splash But what we've seen from Hulk Hogan is Right away It was important when he came over It was a sort of a big deal But the bloom Wore off with Hogan moving the WCW Pretty quickly That was one of the main reasons why he was Okay and and willing to Turn heel because around this Time period there wasn't this Demand for Hulk Hogan The crowd this area in particular was never a Hulk Hogan area. The crowd was this Nashville, the South was not a Hulk Hogan area. And the fact that he's older, sort of over the hill, they were maybe excited to see him right away when he came in. But if you don't have a good story for him, it's just like, oh, here's Hulk Hogan from you know 10 or 15 years ago, the guy that we didn't really like all that much. And now we're not that interested in him. So you know what he was doing at this time? Which, what was he filming? What Which thing was he filming? He was filming the movie that would come out during the 1996 holiday season and totally redefine the way that we approach holiday movies, not just then, but then, now, forever. He Santa with muscles. Filming Santa with muscles. Love it. Love it. So priorities, right? Biggest name in the company, biggest show of the year in the company. Nope. Going to Hollywood, shooting this movie with Ed Bagley's kid. Like, what? I know. All the money they pay to bring you in, you're supposed to be this game changer for them. And he just, there was no buzz for him. They mentioned, he was mentioned once or twice on the show. Um, and they said he was suspended or that he, Bobby tried to say he, he had to meet before the board. They said that he had already met before the board, but noticeably absent. At this period of time is Hulk Hogan And in, in a few months Hulk Hogan's going to be turning bad he, he had this weird period too Where he was like wearing black Before the NWO You know he's kind of like testing it out Here like doing little things And so 
it was already in the wheels were already in motion here because he just did not get the reception anymore, and he was a little bit past his prime. People were sort of interested in something a little bit new, and they would get that in a few months, and they'd get a, a pretty good wrestling show here, even without the Hulkster. So we get right to Tony and Bobby. First up, we get the uh, the battle of the World Cup of Pro Wrestling little video package to start with an intro of some of the matches. Tony Schiavone, Bobby the Brain Heenan, and Dusty Rhodes, our commentary team. Good old Dust sets the scene. And, of course, Bobby predicts that Flair will be the champ by the end of the night. Lots of uh, Bobby, yeah, having some fun playing the bad guy here. And, he, you know, thinking that the Japanese contingent was going to be smarter, more prepared, and, um, you know, Cheering for them when they would win And sort of trying to keep it under his breath Which is funny because in a few months Bobby wouldn't do that with the NWO Bobby always stayed at WCW In fact, Bobby was the guy who said Remember? I told you all He's a bad guy I've been saying it for years about this Hulk Hogan So it's funny that in this particular version Of like company versus company He's he's going anti WCW, but when the real real bad guys come in in a few months, he's actually always Team WCW in that stance. Well, when Hogan turns heel, to a lot of people, he had never been a bad guy before. Mm-hmm. There weren't a lot of people watching in 1996 that were around in 1980 when he was a heel selling out Shea Stadium with Andre the Giant on the undercard of the Bruno San Martino Larry Zbyszko cage match. People didn't remember that at one point. Hogan was a bad guy to them. It was this guy in the red and yellow who came out, said, say your prayers, eat your vitamins, yada, 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 yada. They never seen Hogan as a bad guy. And that opened the floodgates for a lot of bizarro world type stuff. I mean, Larry Zabisco in the announcer's booth was a face. He was never a face for five minutes ever when he was a wrestler. turned on Bruno. You know, who yes. was like one of the all-time heels, you know, and uh, so you're right. It was a funny shift in dynamics that we would see in just a few months. But right now, Bobby the Brain being the heel, the weasel in his normal uh, his normal clothes here that he would wear. Now, whenever we do the old wrestling rewatch, we talk about it. We really don't dive into matches with Chris Benoit. We we have fun doing this show. The reason why we do it is because we enjoy wrestling. We get a kick out of it. And when you have to start diving into stuff with Benoit, it ends up going down a road that we just don't enjoy. So we will mention when he has matches, but usually we uh, we just kind of pass right through them. This was a good match to kick off the card. It was Liger with Sonny Ogo, uh, Sonny Ogo beating Chris Benoit. They went. Almost ten and a half minutes And this was early Benoit at the time And and Liger in his absolute prime So a very solid match Like a three and a half probably plus star match But not necessarily something We need to dive into there uh, Andrew but we will pick things up With a white meat Baby face Eddie Guerrero In the back How funny is this He is I, like It's the mullet that gets me It's the mullet It gets and, me every single time and he's so babyface. First off, he's like mad that Kevin Sullivan went down and in, in, got involved in the match before. So he's mad that there was some cheating. Hmm. I thought he lies, he cheats, and he steals. It's just yeah. It's, and and by the way, really quick before we get too into that, yeah. that match between Benoit and Liger, it's four stars to me if you can stomach it. And I could up until the finish 
because the second Kevin Sullivan shows up, it's just, then it gets really oh, weird. It's just hard to, yeah, with all yeah. that stuff happening, it's so hard but to just it, yeah. Benoit and Liger had dozens of absolutely tremendous matches, both in WCW and in Japan. Uh, when Liger was coming back from his brain tumor, he picked Benoit as his opponent. That shows you how revered Benoit was from an in-ring standpoint, even at that time, even in 1996. But yeah, that match is just, it's this cathartic out-of-body experience. And then you get Eddie Guerrero with Gene backstage. And I I swear, Gino, it's like you're looking at my notes because my notes say he cuts the most generic babyface promo (laughs) imaginable. Now, he he puts over his opponent. And by the way, I'm just going to throw this out there. I'm going to, at some point, call him Shohei Otani because I'm I, an Angels fan. I know. It's going, going to, to happen. For sure. I'm just saying, I understand it's not correct. Just bear with me on that. But he puts over his opponent, says he's going to go out there and try as hard as he can for WCW and yada, 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 yada. You contrast that with the Eddie Guerrero of seven, eight years later, and it's it's like you're looking at a completely different person. I know it, it's it's like somebody was is playing a joke. Someone from the future went back to the future and is playing a joke on him. You know, it's, it's like, like for, from Doctor. Have you seen the new Doctor Strange movie? I have. Yes. It, it's like Eddie Guerrero in another universe. Hundred percent. It, it's like that. It, it really is. It's so great it, it, to see. As uh, yeah, he says. He even says, you know, Mean Gene. First off, I gotta say, it's an honor to be representing WCW in the tournament. You know, and I gotta be on top of my game to win. I'm gonna put the work in to make that happen, Gene. And so. Just funny, funny stuff here as he thanks the fans and he just he literally it was the checklist of babyface things in a promo. So Eddie was uh, happy to be here. And even when even though he hadn't quite figured out his character yet, I mean, he was just guy fresh in and, and wrestling. He was damn good in the ring. I think. Yeah. Who who calls him or on the show? Dusty or even calls him maybe the best wrestler in the world or one of them. So they yep. they. Thought very highly of his wrestling ability from the very beginning, and that was a directive from commentary to make sure to let you know that this guy was a a big time star in the ring. And we'll get to Eddie Guerrero's match in just a bit, but first up, it's Alex Wright, Dust Wonder Kid. You know, I he was so goofy with his character a little bit. I I forgot that you know he was really good in the ring too. He really really at this could, time, yeah. Do you know at this time? He's 20 years old. Let this sink in. Alex Wright is 20 years old. Unbelievable. And and let's let's just paint a picture of the guy he's going against, Koji Kanemoto. American wrestling fans, some of them have no idea who this guy is, and I needed a refresher. This is a guy that in 1998, which was a pretty good year in American wrestling, you had the guy, this guy, Austin kicking ass and taking names. You had WCW's cruiserweights doing phenomenal stuff. This is the guy that was the Observer's most outstanding wrestler that year. He was a five-time IWGP Junior Heavyweight Champion, a three-time Best of the Super Juniors winner. In one of those tournaments, he beat this guy named Prince Devitt, who I feel like we've heard a lot lately, and we all sort of agree is a fantastic performer. This guy was a bridge between the 90s and what we're seeing now with Japanese wrestlers and that style. He worked with Finn Balor. He worked with Shinsuke Nakamura. And this is a really good match. Yeah. 
this is fun you, And you get a really nice ovation for Alex Wright This is when uh, Tony was talking about loving Eddie Guerrero too at the start of this match And Tony also talks about the Hulk Hogan suspension And <laughs> Dusty at one point says When they're talking about the dancing and stuff He says Fandango Which I thought was great <laughs> uh, I had to write that down As uh Good stuff here um, You know just kind of a slow feeling out process To start a little bit of a back and forth uh, We get a Kanemoto uh, Leg sweep and then he starts To work on the the leg the knee Of right and working on that In Saguri um, Kanemoto with an arm drag Some drop kicks there Then Alex Wright starts to uh, take advantage For a little bit splash over the top rope And then right with a chin lock um, Elbow Some chops then uh, spinning heel kick um, by Kanemoto. So really fun back and forth type stuff. Towards the end of the match, we get Kanemoto going to the top rope, hitting the moonsault, but doesn't go for the cover. Then uh, he he gets caught in a German suplex by Alex Wright, which was awesome. And the pace really picked up a little bit. We get a spin kick, then uh, a slam and a splash from Alex Wright. Kanemoto gets his foot up on the ropes. Tony said that Alex is having to be re, uh, Restrained by Referee Nick Patrick and Bobby Says he should have been restrained Before he got that haircut I just <laughs> That was a good one it popped me it really Did so Bobby still had his fastball With some stuff you know um, It wasn't quite as sharp as as you know Five years before but he He, he wasn't done yet either He still had a good year or two in him and he had Some good stuff when the NWO came Into play is towards the end of this match, we get Alex Wright up top, the missile drop kick there, but doesn't go for the cover. And then he hits a, um, he puts Kanemoto up top for a superplex, covers for two. Um, then uh, he gets tossed back into the corner. He tries to leap over Kanemoto and he gets, uh, he has to go face first into the turnbuckle. Kanemoto. Gets the win, so New Japan is up 2-0, Andrew This was a really good match I thought this one, in my opinion, was at least in the three and a half ish range Again, based on what your personal tastes are So, uh, and Bobby immediately cheers that New Japan is up 2-0 I had this at three and three quarters And the sure. only reason it's not four is because I thought the finish was a little bit weak But again, I agree. when you've got this these many matches on this card there are going to be some matches that need to get rushed along. And that's my one gripe with this tournament. It's a best of seven. If we take out the Johnny B. Bad Masa Saido match that we'll get to later and we'll have a very good time with, and the Randy Savage Hiroyoshi Tenzan match that we're going to talk about later that just was not any good, and give, say, the two six-minute matches in this tournament featuring guys like Lex Luger and Sting five extra minutes, and maybe scatter another minute or two here and there. How awesome is this tournament? Like, I understand you're working with New Japan. You want to spotlight their guys, and that's fine and dandy. But this match was awesome as it stood. And with another couple of minutes, I don't think it would have been worse. I'm going to make a comparison that's a little bit out there, but just go with me on this. I, I get serious Jungle Boy vibes when I see Alex Wright work in the mid-90s. We forget how good Alex Wright was when like he was allowed call. to be himself and work. Yep. And 2022 is a totally different environment. 
You don't need to be six foot six, 260 pounds, built like a Greek god. You can get over based on your personality this, and busting your ass. This character would be so over in AEW. Yes, like Alex Wright. German babyface. And would, the times you use him to cut, I mean, just put him with Danhausen. Put him with would, Danhausen and Hook and do like an odd couple thing. That'd he'd be come out awesome. and people would be doing the dance. You know, yeah. the whole, like, you could see it and they do, 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 and it'd be a little more like, um, he, 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 at this point, it would be a little more like, uh, um, you know, sort of like the dance music, you know, just like the dance music sort of scene that they have nowadays, which I think it would, it would hit. You're right. A it lot would, of, it'd be good. It, it would, and, and he, when we do these rewatches, he always is one that stands out to me as a little bit more impressive than I remembered. Yeah, and again, you keep in mind he's 20 years old 20. at the time of this show. He's wrestling they, with someone that he has no no real clue how to communicate with all that much and not someone that he's got like familiarity with either. Like that's that's one thing that's at least worth mentioning for for this show. It's you know, it's a little bit more difficult too when you're working with someone that you don't know all that well that you're not all that familiar with. That's not all that easy to communicate with. For sure, and especially when you consider WCW and planning ahead were not exactly a symbiotic yes. relationship yes. at yes. that time. Very. Having said that, though, again, I, I've said this a lot. He was 20, and they put him in the ring with a guy who, at that time, was one of the best workers in the world, and he more than held up his end of the bargain. In a lot of other promotions, that would have been a star-making performance for Alex Wright. Uh, there were several spots in this match that I looked at and say, yep, WWE and AEW and Impact and MLW and every other promotion on the planet, they're doing the stuff that was in this match. Mm-hmm. This is a match that aged really, really well, even though it's not like they were doing anything blow away as far as spots, just tempo and timing and yep. psychology and whatnot. This was a really, really good match. I thoroughly enjoyed it. The only thing that I wasn't crazy about was just that the finish was a little bit rushed, but that was a theme for this tournament. As it Yeah, a lot out. of them were. Matches just seemed like they were getting going, and then it was time to go home. This is a really good match that if you haven't seen it, you should. So post-match, we actually see that he is the uh, IWGP Junior Heavyweight Champ, uh, Kanemoto at the time. And the announcers let us know that WCW now has to win four of the remaining five World Cup matches in order to win this thing. As uh, we check in with Mean Gene, he mentions how New Japan is up 2-0. He always is going to talk about that WCW hotline. And then he one nine hundred nine hundred. It's just a lot of nines. One nine hundred right? nine oh nine ninety nine hundred. And it is pretty crazy when you think about you know this show, and not only. Was it Hulk Hogan coming over? But it was guys like Mean Gene and Bobby the Brain. Those are those are equally as big acquisitions as Hulk Hogan because those are the people that you see all the time, that you hear all the time. If someone's flipping through the channels, it's what like what AEW has right now with with Jim Ross, right? How many people probably don't even realize that Jim Ross doesn't work for WWE anymore? If you're one of those, you know, watch. Big pay-per-views, check in for WrestleMania You flip something that's on on the TV In the background, you hear Jim Ross's voice And you go, oh, WWE, just kind of stop there Because you're so, you're familiar With the voice, that's sort of what it was like For Mean Gene and Bobby the Brain Who were WWF guys Being here now And, you know, about a a year or so At this point 
Yeah, I mean, you'll look at that, and it, it's not the first time that happened with them either because if you were a wrestling fan in the early Great 80s, point. you saw them as AWA guys, and then they went over and joined the WWF. In fact, great story, Greg Gagne on the AWA DVD that WWE put out put over Bobby Heenan as the one guy that made all of his dates before leaving, that wasn't overly lured by Vince McMahon paying extra to jump early. Hogan was, Gene was, other guys were, Heenan stayed. And that says a lot about who Heenan was, because if you look at other shoot interviews that Bobby Heenan did, he had a very funny term for the AWA and what it stood for. He called it all the world's assholes. So that tells you a lot about Bobby Heenan and the guy that he was. But also, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. You look at WWE and you look at AEW, you see CM Punk as AEW champion as of this taping. And people say, oh, yo, CM Punk, WWE guy, whatever, because they know what he was in the early 2010s. You see guys like Christian who thought we're going to be WWE guys. You see the Hardys. You see a number of other guys there. And also, on the other side, Cody Rhodes helped build AEW, and now he comes out at WrestleMania to the pop to end all pops, despite yep. the fact that everyone knew he was going to be there. It's just the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that's one of the really cool things about wrestling, when every 10 years or so, you just shake the bag, you shuffle things up, and you see what falls out. So, Sonny Ono says, uh, we're going to win five of nothing. And me, Gene, says, well, if you get to four, that's it. We don't even have to wrestle the fifth one. <laughs> and that's when you know that it's going seven. And that, yeah. I thought, was a little bit of a flaw. Yeah. The other thing I didn't like about this interview is he talks about buying WCW. Weird back and, and forth about to, payoffs. Yeah. And it was and really kind of convoluted. Iowa, like, just this it didn't age well no. and i understand you want a foreign manager you want a liaison to new japan and there were times sonny ono was very good in that role he had a long-running feud with medusa during the intermittent times when wcw cared about women's wrestling and he would bring over bull nakano akira hokuto uh, these phenomenal joshi wrestlers from new japan and that was fine but you, you you go this route with it, and it's just weird. We get Lex Luger versus Masahiro Chono, and Jimmy Hart is with Luger. We get a huge pop for Lex Luger. He was this was a good time period for Luger. He was in this weird sort of is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? He's Sting's friend, so he's sort of a good guy, but he's a jackass to everyone else, so he must be a bad guy. And I kind of like the the little bit of shades of gray with him. And if you remember, he was the guy who actually they had beat Hogan and dethrone him because he was so hot and so over and he had that really short-lived run with the title. So he you know, we've talked about Lex Luger in our in so many of our rewatches and, and so many times on in the WWF side in 93 and 94 and how they Really missed on him He had some moments where like The moments where he was over And really over it, it weren't long periods of time But in those short periods of time This dude really had some moments Yeah and that's The thing with Luger Couple of moments where you could have struck while the iron Was hot and then things just Fell apart some of them were out of His control 
he started to get really hot in early 96 in WCW, and then the NWO hit and forced a gigantic reset. He was doing this storyline where he was a heel to literally everyone else, but he was a face to sting. They would come out as a tag team, and Luger would be so indifferent to the fans, Sting would be slapping hands, and Sting would look back. And when he looked back, Luger would suddenly start slapping a fan's hands yeah. on the way to the ring. It's smile it and stuff. It was a really subtle thing. And yeah. if you remember, in the six-man match with Hall and Nash at Bash at the Beach, they created that little window where Luger, quote-unquote, got hurt mm-hmm. and had to be carried to the back. It wound up being believable because you thought for a second, it was going to be oh, Luger. Maybe that's the payoff. Yep. And it turned out it was Hogan. Yeah. But he had that. He had his run in the WWF after he body slammed Yokozuna on mm-hmm. the Intrepid. There were a couple of other runs that he had. And look, this guy had a million dollar look and he had it right as he walked in the door. Once he learned how to work, he had superstar potential. And there were a number of things that got in the way of that. On the other side in this match, you have Masa Chono, who WCW fans will remember because he came over a bunch as a member of NWO Japan. The NWO was such a big storyline that not only did New Japan Pro Wrestling take that, they took the NWO name as well. And when they wound up uh, dissolving the alliance between WCW and New Japan, they became, I'm trying to remember what the name was. It might've been Tecmo Team 2000. It was basically all the NWO New Japan guys in different t-shirts doing the same stuff. So if you ever need a measure of how successful that angle was, right there. My problem here, this match was six minutes. They did a couple of fun spots and then it was time to go home. So Shono goes up top, Luger catches him flush with this back elbow that didn't look you know, insane the first time you saw it, but they do it on replay and you see the timing that it takes to get that right. And Luger caught it flush. Then Luger gets the torture rack. It's a six minute match. It's too short to be any good. But man, when Shono taps out and gets released, the crowd's going freaking insane. And Luger's supposed to be a heel. Yeah. This was, this was a case where you're wondering wait, what the heck's going on here? We're supposed to be booking Luger as a heel, and all of a sudden, everyone is cheering this guy after a six-minute match against a guy that not a lot of people in the arena knew about, even though they'd see a lot of him in the coming years. You get a Yakuza kick early that knocks Luger to the outside. You get um, a test of strength, but then Luger hits the knee to the midsection. So he's still playing it like a heel. You know, He tosses him into the corner, shots to the head, a, a suplex reversal by Chono Then uh, Luger Gets stomped a little bit And Chono works on Luger For a little bit Kind of gouging at his face Luger battles back with some punches And he locks in the sleeper Then a body slam And then Chono with a submission hold But Luger able to break the hold there Chono continues to uh, dish out some punishment But Lex with uh, a couple kicks And then we get an atomic drop from Chono once again, he hits the Yakuza kick. He climbs up top, but that elbow is the one you were talking about that was like flush on the way down. And then he locks him in the torture rack. And um, not long before Chono is giving up. 
This thing went about six and a half minutes A little more than that And now it's 2-1 WCW As uh, Bobby said he wants to take the cup home Dusty says now nah, it's a different cup from last night. It's not that cup that you, that you had. And so throughout the show, he was he was ripping on him for maybe Bobby got a little too drunk the night before, or this might have just been one of those time periods when Bobby was really drinking a lot. I know he would more, but Dusty was giving it to him a few times, and Tony was was sort of like laughing with him about it too. So I I didn't really have any problem with this match. This was kind of what you'd get in a Luger match. With this was sort of the template for. Bigger, stronger guys that you maybe wouldn't want to have going 10 or 15 minutes I still thought this seemed a little bit rushed It could have used for maybe just like a minute or two more Sort of build towards the end But I didn't really have a problem with it I thought it was like two and a half-ish range Two plus stars Yeah, I had it at one and a half Just because it was short Yeah, I mean It's not really offensive But it's just It's not long enough to get above anything more than average Exactly. Take out the Johnny B. Bad match, take out the Randy Savage match, and you've got 12 minutes that you can spread along any way you wish. If this is a 10-minute match where they're able to go back and forth a little bit more, it you probably double that one-and-a-half star rating because they were just getting going when they had to go home, and that was a theme for a couple of matches on this show. Uh, but it's tough to argue with the crowd reaction. The crowd pops huge, and honestly... That's sort of what matters in a in a case like this. No, you're right. It, th- that's all that matters, especially when you have these matches that it, that that's a match that you could be a little bit worried about as a presenter when you have a heel versus someone from a different company, right? Because it's like, yeah. ooh, is the crowd going to maybe just be ice cold here? Because they're not going to maybe be cheering for the other side because they don't really know this guy, but they're probably not going to be cheering for Luger. So you'd much rather have them. Being receptive to the match at least and, um, and that was the case here Lex Luger was over he gets the win And he's going to move on to that number one Contenders match a little later on In the evening and That was something that he had He talked about I think in a promo Following this you know Hey Sting you know we're friends but I'm going to I'm coming after you he Wanted to go after Savage And so it was It was kind of fun with those Four guys being positioned as any one of them could leave the night as the world champ It did seem kind of wide open with, you know, Savage is your current champ Flair, the way they set it up, you might be able to read into it that, okay, Flair doesn't have any other matches and stuff So Flair will probably win that and wrestle twice But from a, anytime Sting is in an opportunity like that, it wouldn't be a shock to see Sting win And with Luger, he had so much of a story happening that it wouldn't have been a shock if Luger would have gone on to win So just watching it from throughout the show And the way they were building it You are talking about four really big stars And three that are in that match Of like the biggest all time Maybe maybe the three biggest Like pure WCW guys In Flair, Luger, and Sting Yeah, it's tough to argue With the guys that they picked The problem just, is And we're seeing this even today When WWE puts the title on guys that aren't full-timers. When the title isn't the featured attraction because the person that holds it either isn't there or is so clearly a placeholder for somebody, it diminishes the product just a little bit. And that's a shame because these guys, all four of them at the top of the card, we talked about those three, but also Savage, 
those guys are Hall of Famers by anybody's measure. And it stinks that that was the way they decided to go about it. And also, we'll get to some of the issues that I had with that match and with the booking in general. WCW's world title scene in early to mid-96 before Hogan came back and did the NWO thing, it was a hot mess. Yeah, really was. We uh, got back to uh, backstage and... One man who was a hot mess with promo sometimes was Sting, and yeah, the words I have here are coked up. Uh, yep, I, but I have like all over the place, uh, but not saying a whole ton. Like, yep, and look, Sting at this point, like you, you weren't sure if it was that or if it was just the fact that Sting was basically the guy that they brought up along with the Ultimate Warrior and UWF, and also until he got clean, hot take on him. Wasn't a great promo. Awful promo. I don't think yeah. Sting's promos were even good until TNA. I like, mean, the the reason Crow Sting worked he didn't is that say he didn't a word. talk. He didn't say a word. Nothing. <laughs> and, and look, I love Sting. Me too. I, I, Sting he's a way better so promo much, nowadays than he was before. Like yeah, he, he he's Sting figured did it so out. So much really good stuff, both in the ring and on the mic. I thought it was a little bit of a joke that it took him as long as it did to get into that Observer Hall of Fame, but. As a promo, e gosh, this was bad. Um, mean Gene brings up that Sting lost the WCW US title to Sasaki a few months back, and Sting kind of goes like, "Oh man, Mean Gene, you had to bring that up, really?" And uh, he said he's going to come out victorious and avenge the loss. He talks about uh, that triangle match coming up later. He says, "But tonight he's out for himself. Just not not very good. Not a very good promo for a main event type guy." Johnny B. Bad with Kimberly versus Masa Saido with Sonny Ono. None my, of this was a good idea. My, my, None of this was a good nothing. idea. My main note right at the top is really, really bad. Yeah. Um, and not Johnny B. <laughs> not so Johnny B. I, I, I've sort of taken on the role as the New Japan history guy here. So I'll, I like I'll, it. Go I'll ahead. I'll do a quick thing here. Masa Saido at this point was 53 years old. They basically brought him out of the mothballs for this particular match. And look, he is a big dude. Masa Saito was the guy that hung out with Ken Patera and served time because of the incident Ken Patera had at the McDonald's where they apparently threw a boulder through the window and it was just this gigantic scene. He was a bad dude in his prime. 15 years prior this they had to put him with Johnny B bad because they needed someone that could bump and for as bad as the match was and the match was very bad the pre-match and post-match stuff is somehow even worse worse it's worse Kimberly had she used to be the diamond doll and Johnny B bad this was always fun when they would do this Think about this today, right? He won her services. He won her in a bet. Am I a bet, Rachel Lee Cook? Where's the line from She's All That? Am I an effing bet? I want to I want to hear that right now. This yep. is this is one of those things where it's like, oh, that's Kimberly and DDP who were really married in real life. It's so much worse when the people are really married too and they do that stuff and they they have them be paired up with someone else. And so she's been his his valet, Sonny Ono grabs the mic and says that Kimberly shouldn't be allowed at ringside. She says no, 
She grabs the mic. Oh no. She says, Oh no. <laughs> yeah. She says, This isn't a Japanese bathhouse. And that she's not some basic woman. And she says, What is he gonna what are you gonna do if I don't leave the ring? But then they both just leave the ring. Yeah. Um, there the was acting, another line. Yeah. The acting another was line like, before the match, really quick. There was another yeah, line that's sort of unsettling. Um I don't know who it was on commentary, but it might have been Heenan. But Heenan pointed out how when Kimberly was with DDP, she came out in these extravagant nightgowns and and all this stuff. And in the words of one of the announcers, she was now a bimbo cheerleader. Mind you, mind you, that is being said as the camera is totally ignoring Johnny B. Bad coming to the ring to focus on Kimberly from behind. Um, yeah. Yeah. Th- this was uncomfortable on a lot of levels. I-, I-, I love me some Kimberly. I thoroughly, you know, I-, I appreciate a beautiful woman, but no buys for me on any of this. Neither Ono nor Kimberly should have been talking there. It, it just bad all around. And then the match started. Yeah. Yeah. So. First, there's a a bow as he throws Johnny Beebhat into the ropes. Uh, Saito bows. Then we get a slow hammer lock, chin lock, uh, chops back and forth. The chops uh, were fun. I like yeah, those. Those That's are fine. The one good part of the match. We he's using the bottom rope to choke Johnny Beebhat. Um, Saito hits a side suplex. Um, stomps on Johnny B. Bad for a bit, then again using the ropes to shake him, to choke him. Um, side rush and leg sweep. You get some punches back and forth, a double axe handle, and Bad's just sort of, you know, suplexing or uh, selling for a lot of this. But he hits the kick, then he's able to go hit the double axe handle, sunset flip, suplex, and a cover, but he only gets one. Um, that's when Sonny Ono tries to get involved. He Johnny, missed his cue by a couple yep, of seconds. Timing is totally off. Johnny B. Bad grabs him. He then Saito picks up Johnny Bad B. Bad, throws him over the top rope, which at this point, even in 1995 WCW, was still considered a disqualification. So he wins by DQ. So now it's 2-2. This was bad, and it was six minutes. So it was it was Long enough to feel like it wasted your time You know So that that's the problem It's like if this was like a two minute And it ends that way You go oh, okay well It it was quick But it was st- it, like Once you get beyond five minutes to me That's when it starts to feel like God if a match can't get you something in five minutes It's a real dud And I just didn't think The chops were okay But the before stuff with this match Then the match wasn't great And then after You know Kimberly's in the ring, but with Saito, Johnny B. Bad makes the save and knocks him out, and then we get a a senton and he celebrates with with Kimberly in the ring. It just I didn't really enjoy any of this whole ten minutes or so. I thought was probably like the worst chunk of uh, of stuff on the show. It was up there, and you mentioned the uh, plancha that Johnny B. Bad hit that somersault thing. I used the word hit. Very, very loosely because either bad overshot it or Saito was a step in front of where he needed to be 
because bad jumped over him and Saido had to sell after bad hit the floor. Um, that was reminiscent of the Jeff Hardy, Jinder Mahal thing where I think Hardy missed a whisper in the wind and Mahal fell down. Like he got shot. This was a version of that. Yeah. Um, there, and this, it stinks cause it, it, it's bad for everybody. Yeah. I mean, everybody involved Johnny the B. credibility. Bad this is not, like, eh. yeah. Johnny B. Bad would not be long for WCW. He would sign the very first guaranteed contract WWF ever gave anyone maybe four or five months after this. And I got to tell you, after stuff like this, I don't blame him. Uh, This was one of those, okay, we need to protect Masa Saido because he's 53 freaking years old and did us a favor by being here. We can't have him lose clean. What can we do? What can we do? What can we do? Oh, over the top rope is a disqualification. Let's use that. And then everybody is, moved on to the next match. It was not good. This was no. like like the chops and whatnot. Those were fun, but the, the fun dissipates really, really fast. Next up, it's Mean Gene backstage with Lex Luger and Jimmy Hart. And uh, Mean Gene asks what's going on with Kevin Sullivan. Jimmy Hart says that Kevin Sullivan has a short fuse. And Mean Gene goes, how do you know that? You know, and he, and he, so um Jimmy's sort of like thrown off. They talk a little bit more about the uh, the triple threat match, the the triangle match as they refer to it. And Lex said, "Hey, look, I already took care of business once tonight. I'm going to do it again." Said he coming right at Flair and Sting, and then he's going to go for Savage right afterwards. And Jimmy Hart says that he's going to prove that he's the best. Or Lex tells Jimmy Hart he's going to prove he's the best, and he actually wants to come to the ring all by himself tonight. So he says, let me do this on my own, which I kind of like. That's sort of a babyface thing, but I thought it was pretty cool. And Jimmy Hart says, sure, we're going to do that. Lex calls Macho Man a pathetic one-armed champ. And there was lots of rambling there. Mean Gene again mentions short fuse. It was like he was trying to get this line over, you know, a couple times. Mean Gene would do this a bit. But I didn't mind Lex in here. I thought it was sort of a little bit. There's a lot happening, but Lex is just the, hey, I think I'm better than you guy. Like that's, that just feels really authentic. Yeah. I like this promo. Luger could cut a pretty good heel promo Mm -hmm. when he wanted to. And the thing with him was someone had to tell him to slow down. And when he slowed down to where it seemed like he didn't have marbles in his mouth, he was a decent promo. And when you give him that kind of language, and he looks the part of the I'm better than you heel. It works. And that's what we got here. Uh, the brief association with Jimmy Hart was strange at the time and even stranger with the benefit of hindsight when yeah. he would become arguably WCW's top babyface in the summer of 96. Mm-hmm. But for what this was, I thought this was pretty good. Me too. I, I was pl- like we said. Lex trying to be shoehorned into the babyface role and cut the babyface promo doesn't really work. It actually it worked fine when it was WCW versus NWO because he could just sort of be like a badass guy and I'm going to go after NWO and the the crowd would would get behind him there. But when he's I I remember that that uh was it I think it was Survivor Series where they have him in the sweater with his family, you know, and and like he's sitting there by the Christmas tree 
He's like, hi, I'm Lex Luger, and here's my family, and you know they're taking like a Christmas trip. It's like, no, that's not Lex Luger. That's not Lex Luger. He's the guy who's better than you. He thinks he looks. He thinks he's better looking. He thinks he's tougher. He's the guy at the gym that talks trash to you, and, and that's like that's who he is. He it's so perfect. And this this was uh, I like this here from Luger. And what I like even more was the match that followed this: Eddie Guerrero versus Shinhiro Otani, and who. Awesome intensity from the start That was the word that I kept coming back to Intense as The word I kept coming back to Pivotable (laughs) (laughs) Dusty Rhodes at the start of this match Mentioning that It was 2-2 to And tied Played into the sports announcer Crutch of any time A series is 2-2 to and it's a best of 7 You can't just call it game 5 You have to call it the pivotal game five, except he added a syllable. Pivotal, it's freaking fantastic! <laughs> At the beginning, he also tries to make, uh, he's trying to get Otani to to hot toddy, like he he thinks it's funny, like you know, I, I had to make me an Otani, you know, like a hot toddy, and it just falls so flat. Like Tony was like, God, no, that's not working, Dusty. It, it was it was kind of funny to hear. And uh, as you mentioned, we're tied 2-2 We're getting a lot of that from Dusty Who is a huge sports fan That's Dusty, love football, love basketball Big time sports fan overall He was also a heck of a basketball player He was There is video of Jim Crockett Promotions Playing a basketball game And Barry Windham couldn't run the floor Even though he looked like a million bucks Lex Luger couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time Dusty Rhodes was a bucket Yeah he he had like you know he has a little Adam Sandler basketball in him you know if you've ever seen Sandler <laughs> it play it doesn't make any sense but it's like he's wow yeah you're like wow this guy just sort of like knows knows where to put his body he kind of like gets to his little spots and uh, yeah it, it was funny so right off the bat just quick stuff from these two guys we get uh, Eddie working him into the corner headlock Otani escapes armbar and so like the feeling out process back and forth. Enziguri uh, from Eddie Then uh, Otani shoots the legs We get a single leg crab here We get some wrestling early on Otani locks in a, a chin lock And then every time they'll sort of get to their feet and, and regroup and come at him again Come at each other again Eddie hits a hurricane rana And that sends Otani out to the floor We get a big drop kick And then a senton um, Boston crab from Eddie He's sitting all the way back down Otani gets to the rope so he has to break the hold Then Eddie hits a big power bomb Really solid I love like cruiserweight power bombs And small like small on small Power bombs because they're really tight You know they're they're Sometimes the the big man power bombs can be a little sloppy But these ones can be tight The way that Eddie would throw them too And um, We get a brain buster and as he makes the cover, Otani has a foot up on the ropes. And then Otani was able to turn the tables, clothesline. And then uh, he hits a big drop kick. Then he hits a big splash to the outside. And Dusty and Bobby have this no clue what they're watching here, but they're they're sort of loving it. The pace is like flying around. Big drop kick from Otani. He's pulling Eddie's hair. He's choking him with the boot with his foot. And he keeps working on Eddie. He's using the the ropes. He's Wait until the five count to break the to break the holds, and 
We get a bridging German suplex for two Then a spinning heel kick from Otani But Eddie's able to get his foot on the ropes This thing is really, really good Um, Otani goes up top But then Eddie's up there too And we get the Frankensteiner From the top for two Then Eddie with a crucifix bomb And uh, Otani Is able to get out of uh, A waist hold And he like locks around the leg of Eddie and gets to the ropes. Then he pulls the middle ropes down and Otani goes charging over. Like Eddie pulls the ropes down. And so uh he's outside, he's in the guardrail, they're working on each other outside, slam on the floor, comes off the middle ropes the, with the splash. I mean, so much good stuff for 1995 at this time. And they both get back in. Looked like Otani has the advantage here. Suplex Eddie. Then a missile drop kick off the top And Eddie just able To get out of a suplex attempt Pinfalls back and forth But Otani is able to uh, Nail him down And he gets the win there So New Japan is up 3-2 to two. This was freaking awesome This was an incredible introduction Like a real real like introduction For Eddie Guerrero Who would was already doing some stuff, but would be a mainstay now for the next few years on WCW programming, cruiserweight stuff, U.S. title stuff. So this was my favorite thing on the show. I, I really, really loved it. They, the ending, my, the only reason why I've got it at like four and not four and a half to higher is because the ending was all of these matches you hit on, Andrew. They all have sort of weird, kind of out of nowhere, convoluted endings, and for a match that was. Flowing really well I think they could have figured out a, a better way to finish this thing I had it at four and a quarter And the only reason it wasn't four and a half Is because the ending was a little bit rushed We talked earlier In the Kanemoto Alex Wright match About how this is stuff WWE and AEW are still doing Almost 30 years later So is this This is absolutely fantastic stuff It's high energy Nothing gets wasted You mentioned the stuff about cruiserweight power bombs And whatnot. The, the, the term that I was going through my mind as you said that, no wasted motion. And that was this match in a nutshell. Absolutely. Everything had a purpose. There was so much tempo and psychology onto it. There was also an all-time great exchange between Bobby Heenan and Dusty Rhodes. Heenan, as Eddie Guerrero is getting choked in the ropes, says, let's say you're Eddie, Dusty. What are you thinking? Dusty says, after a beat, I'm thinking I lost a lot of weight. <laughs> really good like that, that, That's one of those things that's just good And you know that it's in there With Heenan and Dusty You know that it's there You appreciate the pearls But then you get things like Pivotable And yeah. Dusty falling in love with the term Uncling Like he's gonna uncle him Tony Like I know Oh and- god just stop trying so hard in the gimmick And and because Dusty and Tony were so close That it was also that Sometimes it would be great Like they would be talking about something that happened the night before And it would be really funny But then other times it was like when you're there with your best friend And you've got these inside jokes That they would just be like laughing And not able to get over what they were trying to get over So it it was sometimes great And then other times Like you said Dusty was you sort of take what you're going to get with dust at the commentary table. You know, you like you said, you you laugh at the good moments and then you just roll your eyes a little bit when yeah. uh, when he starts saying things that make absolutely no sense. Sort of yeah. like uh, Macho Man 
saying to infinity and beyond twice well this, this is was also six weeks around, it six was weeks around, after yeah. toy story I, I, yeah. I had to look that up so it came out six weeks before yeah. so yeah, you knew he was good. trying but he says it's so funny because he, he says it at the beginning to infinity and beyond and then at the end he says it again it was like wow he just said that twice in the same promo yeah um this is not an all-time great savage promo and honestly it's not a good night for randy savage i no. don't know what was going on i do think I he really he was, was a little bit hurt at the time yeah yeah he was trying to sell the arm and maybe it was a case where he's like okay hogan's not around one of us has to be here it probably has to be me yeah whatever i'll i'll go do this uh but Coming out of the Guerrero Otani match, which is a legitimate four and a quarter star match between Eddie, who is an all time great worker, and Otani, a guy who was just so far ahead of his time, one of the few guys that won the junior heavyweight title in both uh, New Japan and the cruiserweight title in WCW. Uh, it's, it, it, by the way, thankfully he appears to be all right after needing to undergo some pretty serious surgery a couple months back. He had a really bad back problem that he really needed to get fixed, and hopefully he's he's doing better. But speaking of doing better, Randy Savage would have much, much better days and much, much better matches than the one that he would have after this interview with Mean Gene Okerlund. It was uh, it, not a good night for the Macho Man. No, and and the problem is we expect more from him in yes. both, in both with the promo and with the work in the ring. And I, you were kind of hitting on this. These guys must have said that they wanted to, like, have the the show laid out this way, because otherwise, why wouldn't you have had Sting, Luger, and Macho Man wrestle matches early in the card if they're going to come back later in the card? They must have sort of said that they wanted to kind of go right into their matches because. The Savage Sting match are right before the triple threat match, and then the Savage match is going to be after. They could have, they could have split them up a little bit better. So I want you wonder why they chose to do that, and, and if it was maybe the guys going, hey, once we're warmed up, we'd rather just keep going and then get get into a match, get cold, and then get back warmed up again. And I, this match didn't even really get warmed up for me. Like it was fine, right? In a vacuum, it's not an awful match. Oh, I've got it, problems with I this just, match. I, I don't, you liked I don't, it a lot more than me. Yeah, like, I don't think it's awful, but I just want, like, I have it, like, one and a half to two stars. Like, I don't, I just don't think it's, it. it's the same exact problem with the Luger match, though. It doesn't have enough time to really do anything, but it's, it's a little bit longer than what would have just been a squash. You know, we get Macho Man working on him, tens on in the corner early. Um, then he's Tenzon flips it around. He's in charge and, and Savage is going to be selling for a little while and throwing him into the ropes and taking Savage down with the clothesline. Macho man fights back and, but it's, it's lots of pop punches and chops. Uh, you know, macho man keeps fighting back up like little flurries here and there. Tenzon cheating with the eye gouge and raking the back a little bit and then an eye rake. So just some, you know, a lot of cheap heel stuff. Macho Man rolls out of the ring, then Tenzan follows him, throws him into the ring post, a little work on him outside, scoop slam, back body drop. He heads up to the top, Tenzan heads up to the top rope, but misses the moonsault, and then Macho Man with the clothesline, and he clotheslines him over the top, but since he lands on the apron, there's no DQ, which is another one of the really bad rules at the time for WCW. Macho Man tries to 
hit the suplex, but he drops him stomach first on the ropes, and then he goes up top and he hits the uh, elbow, pick up the win. I didn't. It just it. I would not remember this match at all. It has zero like standing with me whatsoever. It's not something I would have thrown a tomato at, but yeah. So I guess I don't. I don't hate it as much as you do, but I did. It was there was nothing to it. If I was ranking stuff all throughout the show and putting these matches in order, I'd probably have this one like closest to the bottom with the uh, you know right after the the Johnny B bad match. I even preferred the Luger match more than I did this one. So it wasn't as if I loved it. I just didn't. It was such a ba- it was so basic. There was just nothing nothing more to it from your world champ and one of the all time great workers. You just hit it. I am going to throw tomatoes at this match, and here's why. Randy Savage is the WCW World Heavyweight Champion. How much offense does he get in in the first six minutes of this match? None. Almost nothing. Absolutely none. And I understand the psychology behind a champion that makes the comeback. Or, you know, you tell a story and you move on. There was no story here. Randy Savage got his ass kicked for six minutes. He hit one move to set up the elbow. He hit the elbow, and that was the match. That was a, one one of my issues with Savage, or with the way that they portrayed Savage in WCW. Is I think he was he was too much even selling, and he sold a hell of a lot in WWF. It wasn't like he you think about the Mega Power stuff and the match with Flair at you know WrestleMania, but it just felt like he was always tired, getting beat down. Really having to sell something And very rarely was just Dishing out like A lot of good offense which is what the guy could do We didn't get to see him flying around quite as much It wasn't it wasn't that he didn't Have it left in the tank because we saw it Times like you mentioned with DDP Right he had a great one with DDP He still was able to To take it to the level Of a main eventer and a world champ But for some reason, it just did not click on this night for him. And even in the world title match against Flair, it just was, it wasn't even remotely close to as good as their match three and a half years earlier. Well, the other thing is keep in mind at this point, Randy Savage is a babyface. In the late 90s, he'd be a heel. And then he'd come back and he'd be sort of a legend type because he didn't really wrestle all that much. He was sort of done. But his run with DDP, he was a heel and he was supposed to be the one getting beaten up and escaping by the skin of his teeth and whatnot. It made sense for him to do that. Here, he's the babyface world champion in a must-win situation. He gets no offense for 90% of the match. That's horrible booking. He drops the elbow. Yeah, sure. Whatever. I hated this, especially given that Randy Savage is still a world-class worker. Hiroyoshi Tenzan is a world-class worker. He won the IWGP title four times. He won the IWGP tag title 12 times. That guy could work. The fact that this is what we got when those two guys got put together, don't even book the damn match. We uh, are now checking in with the announcers. Bobby's all sort of stuck. And he, he's all awkward. He, he, he can't turn around because his wires. Tony are... can't keep a straight face. Yeah, it's it was funny. pretty. It was it was <laughs> funny. It was just awkward, but it was like Heenan, you know, st- doing some stand up and some uh, physical comedy here. And uh, they go back to Mean Gene, and he's laughing a little bit. But he checks in with Ric Flair, and he of course has to mention the hotline once again. But Ric Flair says tonight was Japan versus the USA. 
But tonight it's him uh, and the U and the WCW heavyweight title. Sting and Luger have to remember to be the man. You have to beat the man, and they will know without a shadow of a doubt who the true king is after tonight. He mentions that all the other men will have wrestled, and he will be fresh. It's time to style and profile. So. Uh, coming up shortly. In other words, it's the exact same promo you've seen Ric Flair cut a thousand other times. Exactly. Yep. Very much. Now, he was sort of weird at this point too because he wasn't. He was like a heel-ish, but he was more of a baby face. It was. He was sort of like the older veteran who crowds are. He's so over, and he's such a legend that it's going to be hard for him to just get. Completely booed in most places I think at this point of his career unless he's doing Really dastardly evil stuff So he would get the uh, Like the Lifetime Achievement Award pop In most places when he would go just because They got to see Flair and uh, We would see Flair in a bit First up we're going to see, see Sting Versus Kensuke Sasaki, uh, Sasaki and Bobby calls himself a broadcast journalist at the very beginning, which we oh, that's an all time class, all time greater. And uh, the crowd is really, you know, into Sting as as you would expect. I didn't think that much of this match either. The matches that all went sort of sub ten, I didn't think. And I wonder too when you think about who was in these matches, right? With Savage, with Luger, with Sting, knowing that they had more later on in the night. We're human. Do you holding something back a little bit? Do you not want to let it all out when you have to come back and wrestle? That triangle match goes 28 minutes, which we're going to talk about in a second. Oh, we're going to have a lot of fun with that. So, by have a lot of fun with that, I mean you're going to list everything that happened in the match, and I'm going to do what I did during the match, which is get nice and comfy and cozy underneath my blanket with a pillow behind me, and you can wake me up so that I can say it sucked, and we'll move on. Yeah, that sounds like, <laughs> that sounds like pretty good uh, roles for us coming up. So, yeah, Bobby and Dusty are making fun of Tony in this match for calling, like, the names of some of the moves here, and Sonny Ono, shout out to him, he, he accompanied every New Japan wrestler to the ring. Throughout Hopefully the night. he got paid by the match Yeah um, Quick start, Sasaki attacks Sting He tosses him into the corner uh, Sting fights back, he hits a Stinger splash Pretty quickly And Sasaki um, whips the Sting back into the corner He hits a bulldog and a clothesline But Sting is, uh, Sting is No-selling a little bit earlier on He hits a clothesline himself He tosses Sasaki to the outside And then he uh, Sasaki actually hits a power slam Picks, a nice uh, one too. It was really good. Yeah, he picks him up. He also hits a brain buster. And then he continues to uh, to kind of kick and stomp away at Sting. He puts him in an arm bar. Uh, Sting battles back a little bit, but quickly is knocked down again. Sasaki tosses him into the ropes, and, and then we get an arm drag. He has Sting hooked. He actually puts him in the Scorpion Deathlock. Now I'm going to pause here. I'm going to pause here. How many shades of the Scorpion Deathlock and Sharpshooter did we see on Sunday during AEW Double or Nothing? And oh how many of them sucked? Gosh. They're... Look at this one and take notes. I this know. one was really, really good. It was great. And then Sting fights up and powers out. They're talking about how Sting knows how to get out of this move because this is his move. And he gets back to his feet. Um, Suzaki takes him down again, but Sting hits an Inziguri. Sting is able to few punches and a clothesline, and then Scorpion Deathlock for the tap out. So WCW wins four to three. This thing went about seven minutes. I mean, I liked it better than the Savage match. It still wasn't 
great It's you know you're going to get some of the, the basics from Sting Sting needs a really good dance partner And a good story for the matches To kind of hit the next level So this was fine Didn't really bother me Didn't really take it to the next level And then we get the, the big post-match celebration Here Andrew where uh, the other members of the WCW that were involved come out. They congratulate Sting. They all celebrate. Mean Gene comes out to the ring. They present a trophy, and Sting cuts a little promo. Said it was great to win this for the USA, and uh, Mean Gene <laughs> wants them to sip champagne out of the cup. No, like, okay, Gene, sure. Uh, later on tonight, we will do that. And uh, then we get the the package to set up the uh, the final part of the show with the uh, the number one contenders match and the title match. So. Sting, Sasaki, what did you think about the match And some of the post-match I liked the match, I thought it was a fun Sprint for six or seven minutes This was another instance where If you cut the Savage Tenzan match and the Bad Saito match Give this match five more Minutes, and how much more fun is it When you've got two guys that can go Kensuke Sasaki Five-time IWGP champion Seven-time IWGP Tag team champion an observer Hall of Famer, and not even the most badass member of his own family because his wife is Akira Hokuto. And I'm just saying, you don't want to mess with her at all whatsoever. Um, So I love how they came out really fast in this match. Sting came out with the splash. Sasaki had a nice bulldog and got a few clotheslines, and they all went tumbling to the floor. The Sasaki power slam... There's a lot of Randy Orton in that standing power slam. It's so, so good. I liked this match. I just wish there was more of it. I understand why there wasn't. But you take out those two matches I mentioned, you make it a best of five, you lengthen a couple of the matches that could really use it, and all of a sudden, you've got a tournament that's not just a good tournament, it's a great one. But we're picking nits at this point. It was fine for what it was. Yeah. You wind up with WCW getting the cup. You wind up with a lot of the New Japan guys looking reasonably good and in positions where some of them could come back. Sasaki would wind up coming back. Shono would wind up coming back. Otani would wind up coming back. The only guy that is glaring by his absence is the great Muda, and I think he might have been hurt at this point. So we get a video package to set up the number one contenders match, the triangle match, Ric Flair, Lex Luger, and Sting. The first problem I have with this, it's a triple threat match where you have to tag in. I never, I never understand these types of matches. They do it with tag teams too. It doesn't make any sense. The, the announcers try to like put it over and have it make sense, but they they can't even do it when they have to talk about it themselves. Like, why would you ever tag out? Oh, Okay, but Flair's gonna tag, uh, you know, Sting in. So now we know that Luger and Sting have to go at it. They have to fight. It just doesn't make sense because if you're, not, it's not an elimination match. It's right. If it's an elimination match, then it's fine. Then, then you're actually fine standing outside of the ring because then you know you can't get eliminated. But if you're not in the match, you can lose. I, I just, I hate this being the premise for a match ever. So right off the bat, that's that's the first problem I have. This thing goes 28 minutes when you've had two guys that already have a match and you know that whoever wins this match has to go again immediately following. It is such a slow start to this thing. And it's I just Sting and Flair start off the match. Luger's on the apron. Um, you know, Sting 
Flair's in control early, then Sting recovers. He takes Flair to a slam. He hits a bulldog. Uh, you no, know, Flair's throwing Sting into the railing, but Sting is no selling stuff early on. Then he tosses him back in the ring. Um, Luger tries to get in, but the ref cuts him off. Flair, you know, coming off the ropes, he kicks him. A lot of the work is fine. It's just slow paced. They know that they have a long match to go. It's just way too long and a lot slower because of it, Andrew. And if this thing has 10 minutes cut off of it, it would have been way better. And 10 minutes cut off would have still had this be an 18-minute match. It still would have had plenty of time. Nothing that went on in here would have been missed. There were no big, huge spots that would have had to be cut out of this thing. It was just, it was really basic. They were trying to tell the story of you know three of the all time greats in WCW they were trying to tell the story that Luger and Sting are friends that you know they're not going to are they going to have to face each other at all and Flair's trying to sort of manipulate that situation a little bit Flair goes after Luger we get Flair and Luger at one point cuz Luger tags in so he gets up in Flair's face and Flair does some of his typical he does a big flop Luger's doing a lot of the power moves on Flair and Flair Locks in the uh, figure four Grabbing the ropes for leverage And then as Luger sits up I thought this was a fun spot Flair slaps him in the face But that really pisses Luger off And Luger starts to get real crazy So he he's able to uh, to flip over And now they have to break the hold I mean Just nothing awful Individually about the work Everything was too slow paced Everything was just way too long Flair tags out now so then we get that Sting Luger face off they kind of hesitate For a little bit nobody really wants to hit The other one they kind of fight out And encounter a couple things here and there Then we get Luger With an atomic drop but No selling from Sting then Close lines from Sting Luger's back in the corner Um, Then Luger hits Sting with the elbow and a slam So they're starting to go at it a little bit here Luger tosses Sting to the other side Then Luger Um Kicks Sting outside and then Sting hits him in the stomach, tosses him back in. So these two guys now for the you know the second half or maybe like the the final third of this match were going at it quite quite good. We get a Vader bomb. Um, we get Sting trying to put Luger in the Scorpion Deathlock. Luger like locks out of it, grabs the ropes. I hated this kind of stuff. We get a low blow right in front of the ref, and he hits an atomic drop. And near fall on a roll up Sting with the sunset flip So these guys are like the, the individual Back and forth from Sting and Luger I didn't mind here But you could just sense what was happening We could all see what was going to happen Luger picks up Sting He puts him in the torture rack But he ends up hit, knocking the referee So the ref is out So Flair throws both guys outside And Nick Patrick Counts them both out So this was bizarre because Flair doesn't even really Did he really tag in? No, right? He didn't really tag in Which he was supposed to have done And so Flair wasn't really A legal participant in the match He wins because the two Just both get counted out So by default Everything about this The triple threat, the tagging in and out The way they ended it All it did was take away from a match That could have been Good if this match was 15 minutes With these three guys in a normal triple threat 15 minutes, no stupid stuff Just have it be a regular triple threat With all three guys in the ring at once 
And Flair could have still done the same exact stuff he was doing Where he'd just back up and pull the Jake the Snake And like sit in the corner and let these two guys go at it I just They get too cute sometimes, Andrew And that was the problem here Yeah um, Getting too cute is an understatement You mentioned time being a problem Between this match and the main event It was about 40 minutes For two matches Neither of which had a clean finish I understand the point Is to get over Ric Flair As a heel champion I get that Wholly understand that It's Ric Flair You don't need bells and whistles With Ric Flair You don't need bells and whistles With any of these guys Because who would have been hurt by losing clean Out of any of these four guys With Flair, with Sting, with Luger And with Savage in the main event None of them to each other No None, not at all whatsoever It's not a case where one guy absolutely had to win And one guy absolutely had to lose And they got it wrong And oh my god, how could you possibly do this? Whatever If you're going to have a 28 minute match Have a freaking finish That's not a finish That's this a cop out what and WWE look, does sometimes nowadays, and it frustrates us. You know, well, we get invested. Well, the thing that gets me, the thing that gets me, is the main event picture was such a mess, and none of this mattered in six months because Hogan came back as a heel wearing the black and white. The NWO became the biggest thing that WCW ever did, and who cared who the world champion was? None of this mattered. Like I was watching this, and my thinking was, okay. If they had just ended the show with Sting and Team WCW hoisting the cup after vanquishing New Japan Pro Wrestling, I think it's a better show. I completely agree. Like, neither of these matches that finished, they weren't bad, but they were so disappointing, given who was involved. And one of the quotes that I have here from a guy named Scott Keith, who's wrestling writing I like. I queued up his recap as I was watching the show and I was comparing notes and I think he nailed it talking about how it was a lousy finish and then said Sting Flair was entertaining, Luger Flair was entertaining and Sting Luger killed the crowd. It's just one of those things where Sting and Luger for as much chemistry as they had as tag team partners, they had no chemistry as opponents And if you'd have just done this as a four-way match where you give them one showdown instead of a bunch and you don't have the stupid, you know, everybody's got a tag in and out and whatnot, you know, it it probably works a lot better. It would have made a lot more sense as a four-way. It's just a four-way match for the title with those four. You and can you have, can do the same finish. Exactly the same thing. And you can have all the different combinations and... And you would, it would have just been better It just would have been better, unfortunately Now, let me say all of this I completely understand Why they thought We need at least a couple matches that are big WCW-only matches Because this still is Starcade, And we are going to be putting on a show Where our fan base Is not going to know most of these people So we don't really know How over some of these matches are going to be we want to give them at least a couple where we have WCW, WCW. I am fine with that. But the way they did those matches was just crappy, to be honest. It was. If we if we just would have said, like you said, we're going to have a four-way, and make, make everyone wrestle a match. Have Flair be in there, too, so that all four of those guys all wrestled a match earlier in the night, and then they all come back and have a four-way. 
that that makes the most sense because then it's a little bit less predictable when you sit here and look at it because I even just looking at the uh, you know looking at the card on as you go through the matches and I'm looking and I'm and it was like oh yeah Ric Flair only wrestled those he didn't wrestle in the and you can you can sort of like understand where they're going it was kind of predictable so they just one of the big problems with WCW. And one of the major differences with WCW versus WWF and WWE, and I will still say WWE nowadays versus other wrestling companies, they do a really good job with the production stuff. They do a really good job with the way they set things up. You may not agree with some of the booking decisions that they make, but very rarely does WWE put something on their TV where you go, they didn't really plan that or think that through or like they didn't have like. The, the production type stuff, right? It, it it always runs pretty smoothly for the most part. And WCW was the total opposite of that. There were people timing wise, things were off. You never knew if sometimes matches went a little too long or a little too short. And while WCW and NWA, especially in the 80s and into the early 90s, probably always had the better in ring product at that time, when you have Things that are just a little sloppy It will bring the whole feel Of your show down sometimes Yeah and it leaves A bad taste in your mouth Yep when it's the last thing you see On a card and I think that's a reason that This pay-per-view doesn't get remembered As fondly as it should When we heard about Forbidden Door That AEW was doing There were some people who were going oh my god This is the first time this has ever happened before No Absolutely not But I think in a lot of ways The main event that was supposed to be a dream match Wound up killing the show It did Because once we get to the point of the main event We have uh, the Michael Buffer intro First up Jimmy Hart uh, Comes out And he starts talking to Flair So Jimmy Hart's like trying to come and be like Hey look I'll help you out here And uh, so Tony, Bobby and Dusty Set this whole thing up And Michael Buffer Gives us the intro and we get the heavyweight title match Macho Man versus Ric Flair And this is Flair going for his 12th world title Macho with a quick start He tries to end it right away with a backslide Then we get a a lockup Flair's working Savage into the corner Chops, punches And uh, then Macho Man takes Ric Flair down And he's in control Paul Orndorff just comes down to the ring And stares at Flair Who had hurt his neck a few weeks back this was just weird Like that you have him come down And then don't really do anything He just sort of looks Then, Yeah that was really weird The explanation was that Fly and Brian Pillman Had done something to Orndorff's neck And at the time Pillman was a horseman So that's why that happened But ultimately everything wound up getting scrapped Yeah and it didn't really Lead to anything in the match Which was also weird So Macho Man t- goes up to the top rope But uh, Flair hits him uh, in the midsection Coming off the top rope Flair tosses uh, Macho into the guardrail And then the ring post Chops on uh, on Macho Man And he works him over And then they get back in the ring And Jimmy Hart kicks Macho Man When the referee isn't looking Then Flair starts to slow things down Hammerlock, he's doing the heel stuff Using the ropes for leverage He's coming down on uh, Working on the arm now with knee drops And using the ropes so a lot of selling again for Savage He gets back to his feet And then uh, Ric Flair continues to Work on the bad arm Macho Man keeps trying to fight out With punches here and there And then he takes Flair down 
The Flair locks in a sleeper But Macho's able to fight out of it And uh, nails Flair in the head Covers him for two Then Macho Man tosses Ric Flair Into the corner with a back body drop Climbs to the top rope But Flair hits him again in the midsection And as Jimmy Hart throws his megaphone In the ring Macho Man actually catches it And Flair And he, he nails Flair So Flair's bleeding all over Flair gushing, bleeding everybody Gushing drink. Gushing blood and Macho Man Hits the flying elbow off the top He was way across the ring I mean He was on the opposite side of the ring This was at least more than half I think more like three quarters of the way Across the ring Macho Man covers him but Jimmy Hart Has been distracting the referee And while the ref is distracted Here comes the new four horsemen Brian Pillman, Chris Benoit They come out to the ring And as Macho Man is distracted by them He takes them out Arn Anderson, the enforcer He comes in He hits Macho Man in the head with an object And then he picks up Flair And kind of tosses him on Macho Man For the win So this thing went about a little over eight and a half minutes So in Macho Man's two matches He was out there for about 15 minutes Throughout the night He sold for more than 10 uh, yeah. 15, I was going to say more, probably 12 of the 15 There were probably 2-3 to three minutes throughout both matches Where he was on offense And I don't, on paper, the ending I'm fine with right? The heels, it's the four horsemen, it's the faction You're, you're trying to sell Flair and these new four horsemen as an you know, evil group It just felt like so overbooked You got the three different guys coming out there Then Arn's out there And just it was just a little bit too much This is the kind of stuff Andrew that when you have Ric Flair And Macho Man there you don't really need You don't really need all these Extra you, you, you said the phrasing Earlier bells and whistles When you've got guys that are all time greats In the, the bells and whistles Are for like older veterans Who can't really bump and we can We at least could understand what they were trying To do with the Johnny B bad stuff right he's bumping All over because the guy he's wrestling can't Take a bump these two guys could still go At this point they still had plenty left In the tank I just didn't like The way they set the whole last Part of the night up with these matches And we know we've Seen this combination Have some incredible matches that were really heated and really good in ring. And so it just is disappointing when it doesn't get to that level. And why the hell is Dusty cheering for the horsemen when the horsemen come out? He's all excited for them. It's like, didn't Flair and, and Arn like destroy you throughout the years multiple times? And he's out there like, oh, it's the horsemen and the horsemen ride again. Oh, look at this. And I, that was the one thing that, um, I'll give Wade Keller credit for this too Because he points out a lot of times When commentary I know it's not the same as it used to be With babyface, heel And such strict good guy Bad guy stuff But it is It can be confusing for the people at home watching Like wondering like who's the bad guy Who's the good guy sometimes When your commentary team is cheering the heels Or making excuses Or making cases for why the heels Are okay with acting heelish So this is one of those things where I would have rather seen Dusty say, oh my god, they screwed Macho Man And those damn horsemen, they did it to me before Those sons of bitches Like, it was just a weird a weird take from Dusty Who had ex- ex- experienced this before Like, the horsemen probably cost him titles and title shots through the years, right? Yeah, uh, again, not a lot of that makes sense 
Um, and, and this match in general was just, it was the worst case scenario with two all time greats. Just give them a finish one where like, ideally one goes over clean as a sheet, then let the bell ring and let them figure it out. It's not hard. Wrestling is at its best when it is simple and this tournament for its faults. And there were several for the most part was pretty darn simple. You had WCW and new Japan looking to see which one was superior. New Japan sends their best seven guys. WCW sends their best seven guys. Hey, let's figure it out. Simple stuff. The three-way match and this match, not simple at all. And the show suffered for it, which is a shame because there's some really, really good stuff on this show that we might see more of next month when Forbidden Door winds up airing from the United Center outside of Chicago. Just a little disappointing the way it ended. Overall, I thought it was, and again, what's disappointing about the Flair and Savage matches and some of them are that it's not that if if you didn't know Ric Flair and Randy Savage and you just watched those matches as the first ever wrestling matches you watched, you'd be like, okay, they're okay. But unfortunately, we can't do that. We know what these guys can do. We know who they are. And as you said, Macho Man just did not on this show feel like the world champ. He was not treated like a world champ. He wasn't booked like one. He didn't have, he didn't even have like the charisma. You know, he wasn't cutting promos. He just, you would have never known he was the world champ here with the way that he was presented on this show. And I think that was a little, a little disappointing for me towards the end because early on, the the matches that I would love to tell people to go back and watch over and over are the Eddie Guerrero match and the Alex Wright match, both of which I thought were fantastic and better than I even remembered. Because now I watch these shows now a little bit different, especially when we're doing the rewatch than I might have watched this show 15 years ago when I'm just kind of having it on in the background with something. Those two matches were very, very good. And uh, they were the... The the high points of the show for me Even the low, low points of the show There weren't that many The low point I thought was the Johnny B. Bad stuff And and for as disappointing as I was with Savage and Flair It still wasn't like awful wrestle crap All time bad negative five stars type stuff It was just, damn We know these guys can be really good And they just, they tried to do it Like you said, roll the ball out there And let these guys go Yeah that's uh, that's exactly the point. I mean, we're in a position now where we look back and we go, oh, God, why did WCW need to think they were playing chess when all they needed to do was play checkers? And boy, wouldn't that be their undoing in the late 1990s when the NWO started losing steam? My God, just look at some of the shows that we've recapped from the year 2000 that were partially to punish Darren Zocali, but also to be able to do a little bit of a history lesson as far as what happens when trying to keep things simple gets thrown out the window. Andrew Champagne, we are uh, coming up. A lot of people will probably hear this, I think, a few days before the Belmont. So uh, you and uh, you and, and I and uh, Darren will probably talk a little bit about some of the, the Belmont field and uh, the undercard races as we lead into Belmont um, coming up. But I have a pick for our next show. And... This one isn't like a crazy big historical show or anything, but what is I, I really enjoy it. I think it it's a fun show 
Because there's one specific match that I really like on this show that I think we'll have a lot of fun talking with um, if I remember it specifically. And I'm talking about uh, a pay per view that is two months following the really the coronation of Stone Cold Steve Austin when he wins in 1998 at WrestleMania when he beat Shawn Michaels for the title. We're going to go two months after that to In Your House Over the Edge. And this is a fun main event. With Stone Cold and Dude Love Where it was a Falls Count Anywhere match And Mr. McMahon was a special guest ref Pat Patterson was the ring announcer Gerald Briscoe was the timekeeper And The Undertaker was the enforcer And they were trying to stack the deck In every way possible against Austin This is like corporate Dude Love At the time when you know And McFoley is doing some great work here So this is a match that I really It's one of those matches that you roll your eyes at Because you sort of know it's going to happen But it's fine when Austin ends up winning It would have been awful if if they ended up having Dude Love, you know, th- take the cheap route To win the, the title here I'm excited about talk uh, to talk this one We end up getting a Kane-Vader match uh, Earlier on the card We get Rock versus Farouk for the IC title We get The Nation Which is D'Lo, Kama, and Owen The Nugget at that point Versus DX, Billy Gunn, Road Dog, and Triple H uh, we have Miro versus Sable earlier in the night, which when that whole thing was going on, and uh, we have LOD 2000, so we'll get an LOD pop to start the night, and we'll uh, we'll get a little sunny there, um, which is uh, very sad to talk about what's been going on with Tammy Sitch as of late. But Andrew, we're going to In Your House. I think we've done a few of these In Your House shows, and uh, we're going to see what life was like for Stone Cold not long after winning the title. Yeah, this, from what I remember... Had an undercard that is going to have all three of us cursing as far as why the hell are we watching this show? Exactly. Uh, Yeah, the undercard is absolutely brutal. But honestly, most of WWF in the late 90s, from a work rate perspective, wasn't anything that we remember for the work rate. All we remember is when the glass breaks, things get real. And that's how you know you're over. This match was between Austin and Dude Love, Mick Foley, whatever you want to call him. This was great. I remember that. I'm looking forward to rewatching that one. The other stuff on this card, just in looking at this, uh, Mark Miro against Sable, uh, LOD 2000 when they were uh, about done pushing them as a serious unit. Uh, we get kind of before they're You're- good. You're um, welcome, Andrew. I'm, I'm, You're I'm welcome. just saying this is uh, th- there. There's some bad to go with the good here. So we'll suffer through a little bit, and then we'll have some fun with uh, with Mick and with Austin. And you know, it's funny. It was reminding me of because we talked a little bit about the very beginning of the show about uh, Jushin Thunder Liger, who was on the card. Austin about a year or two ago, when um, or I, I guess it must have been a little longer ago than that when uh, when. Was Tyler Breeze wrestled Jushin Thunder Liger in NXT Austin was, was sort of like responding to it And he was like Jushin Thunder Liger That guy's still wrestling He was talking it was, it, it was just such a funny like Austin response He was like I was wrestling that dude in 95 And it was uh, <laughs> it was just great to hear So, it, uh, By the way if you haven't seen the Breeze Liger match It's on the network Go pull it up It's a really good show And that's a it's a historical curiosity Breeze tells the story of how he's in catering 
and he's wondering where where is this guy? What are we doing? Da 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 da. And all of a sudden, he looks and he sees a guy he doesn't know, and he looks and says, "Hey, we working tonight?" And the guy goes, "Yeah, how you doing?" And they wind up mapping out a ten minute match that's actually pretty darn good. Look, Jushin Liger at that point is on the wrong side of fifty, but. He's one of those guys that just, it, it never gets old watching him work. He does Tyler Breeze's taunt and Breeze goes crazy. It's just, again, it's the selfie best, stick too, right? Yeah. He was using yeah. the self. Yeah. yeah. Again, wrestling is at its best when it is simple. That's okay, the overriding theme here. And I know you're a big fan and people were, we're sort of hoping that we might have gotten a Tyler Breeze uh, showing because Tyler was he back up on up up down down recently? Yes, he and Xavier Woods are doing Battle of the Brands again, and I got to tell you, this was pretty cool. They apparently flew him to Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, so that he could record stuff with Woods backstage at SmackDown. So you I'm wonder? Hoping he, I'm hoping he's back because the door's open, right? Like that's a guy that has something to offer in a lot of different ways. Even if you're just going to send him to NXT 2.0 to be the veteran gatekeeper type guy, and like, which they've been he's doing that before, he's and they've been before. doing that recently in NXT. And I've really liked when they've been doing that with guys like Ziggler or Natalia, who maybe didn't have a whole lot going on and could really go down there and sort of use some of their star power. And honestly. I'm not sure if, if you've been paying attention the last few weeks. The one guy who we talked about, who I I like quite a bit, and I don't know if it's gonna if this role will work or if he'll ever be able to get over in WWE. But I myself, if I were creating a company, one of the guys I would put stock in right away would be LA Knight. I think the dude is super talented. Eli Drake, he can talk, he can cut promos. How many different names does he have right? now? And he's really he's. A lot better in the ring than I think people give him credit for. He's fine. And, you put him with the yeah. right guy, he can be carried. He's, he's and he's playing a Max Dupree, Max Dupree right now, which is like a male model gimmick. If we got Breeze and Fondongo as part of his like stable, that would be a way to quickly get this guy over because the crowd would really like that. They love those guys. the The fans love Tyler Breeze. They loved what was happening with the fashion police. That little period was fun. That was actually some of the best legitimate comedy that WWE has done ever. Some of that fashion police stuff and those segments, those skits backstage where they have all the different like Easter eggs behind them on the walls. And you could tell they were having fun with it. So I know you, I'm glad we got to mention Breeze for a minute because I know you're a big fan of his and, and a lot of the stuff. And there were some rumors that, the wheels might be spinning again and the doors are opened back up to bring him back in. And it could fit really well if you put him in this, like, you know, the male model stuff with, uh, with Max Dupree, I could see it. I could see it being at least something that people wouldn't want to turn off when it came on TV. Right. So I I'm selfish here. I, if you haven't seen up, up, down, down, Uno, this was for a time period of about a year and a half, Xavier Woods, Tyler Breeze, Cesaro and Adam Cole playing overly competitive Uno. That sounds like the most boring thing in the world. You will get hooked after 10 minutes watching these guys go and cut promos on each other and like throw their controllers around and whatnot. It's some of the most entertaining things you will ever see in your life. And you know why it's entertaining? Because these guys are just being themselves. Yeah. It's simple. 
Gee, how many times am I going to say simple in the last 20 minutes of this podcast before some promoter out there takes the freaking hint? I know. Maybe they'll uh, name it like uh, SWO, the Simple Wrestling Organization, right? We need a a territory. You, me, and Darren need a territory somewhere. We can, you know, we can ping pong the shows back and forth between Staten Island, SoCal, and NorCal, and we can go from there. How do we with, not have a territory? The, I was going to say, with as much people, with the people that we know and uh, and some of the different places who, you know, people are wrestling fans, I feel like we might be able to get a little support out there and uh, and book a pretty decent start show. Start the GoFundMe right now. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's start it up. And uh, Andrew Champagne will be here with me each and every week on the old wrestling rewatch. The next time we link, it might be talking some Belmont stuff, but the next time that we do talk Old wrestling we're going to be talking WWF 1998 And we're going to be talking Over the Edge As uh, the main event there with Stone Cold And with Dude Love So that'll be next On the Old Wrestling Rewatch Andrew I know you've got a, a lot of work coming up And you've got a trip coming up Actually when people listen to this you might be Up in uh, up in Canada at the time Tell us uh, what you got going on And uh, where we can follow you Some of the work you have Sure, so the fine people at Katina Media are sending me to the Sigma Americas Conference in Toronto, which is, as you'll remember, of course, the site of several WrestleManias and whatnot. One of my big early That's What G said rants was chastising WWF in WrestleMania 6 for doing overly patriotic things in Toronto. So on a kidding (laughs) side... I'm looking forward to this. I have heard Toronto is absolutely lovely. I will be going there for a conference for a couple of days. And Gino, I swear these people have gone insane because not only are they letting me go to Woodbine on Thursday, June 9th for my first time ever going to that wonderful, wonderful facility. They want me to write about it. Wow. Yes. Awesome. You can see see that on playcanada.com likely end of next week, beginning of the following week. But uh, yeah, I'm really excited for this one. Uh, COVID is by no means over, so there is going to be some caution that's utilized, but it's going to be good to be able to to get out there, network with some people, learn from some interesting people, and uh, just enjoy the conference. Uh, if you're looking for other stuff, at Andrew Champagne on Twitter, at 142 Winners on Twitch and on Instagram. A lot of really cool stuff going on. In addition to all of this, in a couple of weeks, the Northern California Fair season starts. I'll be doing some handicapping seminars at the Alameda County Fair in Pleasanton on weekends and on the 4th of July. And then we're into Saratoga, and that's where I become an insufferable jerk. <laughs> but you also become an even better handicapper there where you put yes, a little, in, a little in more the focus. Words, in the words of Ric Flair, to be the man... You got to beat the man and every newspaper handicapper from coast to coast that does Saratoga after last year, they got me to catch. Let's do this. Andrew Champagne. He's here with us each and every week. Thanks so much, buddy. You have a great rest of your night. Looking forward to talking more racing and uh, and wrestling with you in the coming days. Likewise. Let's go Modonigal. <laughs> that was that was another one that you called early on. We'll see if uh, you can be right again. Andrew loves one to, of uh, these years. One of these years <laughs> loves to call his shot months in advance. Let's see if he can do so this year when we uh, we talk a little bit more about the Belmont. But don't go anywhere, folks. A lot more to discuss on this episode. Of That's what G said. That's going to do it for this episode. Of That's what G said podcast. A big thank you to Eric for helping us out. 
with the NBA each and every week. Only a few more uh, episodes uh, to talk with Eric before uh, we will transition and start talking more football stuff. Thanks to Andrew for helping out with the old wrestling rewatch. Next week, we're going to have a lot of Belmont talk as we head to the Belmont. We'll continue on with Obi-Wan Kenobi. We'll have a Doctor Strange deep dive of uh, the Multiverse of Madness for you. And we'll continue on with racing from Louisiana Downs each and every day. They race wherever there's big racing each weekend. You know we'll be covering it. Always stuff for Santa Anita, stuff for Stable Duel. And uh, yeah, we're we're getting towards the summer now. Have a fantastic rest of your weekend, folks. And uh, we'll be talking to you again real soon.